0: Wool shift dust is back, rising from a sleep-like death, like a raven-faced angel of vengeance. Tis the most wonderful time of year. Spooky season, of course. And it just so happens that one of my favorite filmmakers has made an adaptation of the writing of one of my favorite authors of all time. So you better fucking believe we're covering The Fall of the House of Usher on Netflix. Don't worry if you haven't seen it just yet. We're going to start with a spoiler-free chat about the series overall, and then we'll warn you before diving into the actual plot spoilers and all the tie-ins, or a whole bunch of them at least. Everything's been incorporated from post-stories and poems to pieces of his real life that uh, showrunner Mike Flanagan has woven in. So we'll get to that soon, but first I have a very special guest with me for this one. More on that in a minute. Just to mention, if you're into the Poe series, we're doing a whole cross podcast thing. I've got a conversation with Maester Anthony on Electric Bookaloo in this feed already. So we're talking about the influence of Poe on George R. R. Martin and the Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire series. And we've got book club already up in the book club feed. It's double poe trouble where I do full readings and we have, uh, one of our very own dead Jedi, Bob also helps. He does the Raven and I do the fall of the house of Escher itself, complete with sound effects and even maybe some singing. <laughs> and then, yeah, in the lore hounds, I also had a chat with John about Mike Flanagan john's seven deadly sins theory and i talk about a hop frog theory that i won't be talking about here uh, tie in with another post story yeah so time to welcome my special guest and it is i've promised it on previous podcasts my very own sister grew up together share the blood share the memories good and bad ashley welcome to will shift dust thank you alicia it's good to
1: see you good to be here with you
0: yeah. So, yeah, we're coordinating across continents now. Yes. Yeah. You live in Philadelphia, where I grew up, and also a significant city in Poe's life. Yeah. So I hope listeners can tell us apart. We always get told that we have similar voices. Yep. Hopefully you can tell that
1: I am the cool one. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. right. We'll, we'll litigate that at the end of the podcast. Um, yeah. So, We obviously watched a lot of horror movie together growing up. Um, I started a bit earlier. I'm the older one. It was kind of like an accidental nightmare cure for me. Yeah, mom and dad realized like when I pestered them to stay up one night and watch Jaws and HBO that I actually had fewer nightmares for some reason. So they're like, okay, fine. Um, But what, what was your first horror memory, Ashley? Honestly, it's the leprechaun I remember
1: pretty vividly the scene with the pogo stick where he's jumping on a person on her belly. And uh, yeah, I was t- looking back to this day. I'm still kind of surprised that they let me watch that so young, but also not surprised because yeah. they just, you know, they let us do that.
0: They're chill, chill parents. Yeah, um, yeah so I guess that's my fault. huh? <laughs> thank-, thank you then. But now we kind of uh have our tastes have somewhat diverged. Like you watch a bit more of like the Saw, Hostel stuff than I do. I do. I like um movies that are easy to follow
1: honestly so i don't have to think too much a lot of the time although i do appreciate a variety Mm -hmm. but i just love visceral guttural gore
0: yeah okay okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah and i i tend to go to the supernatural i don't know i i like the whole gothic vibe which obviously ties back to the whole po love um uh so ashley talking about the series at hand what is your, no spoilers yet, but what is your hot take on the fall of the House of Usher as a whole? Did you like it? What were some of your highlights, lowlights? I did. I enjoyed it overall.
1: I, I'm trying to think of what I can say without being a spoiler because I'm not used to this. But mm-hmm. I liked the arc of the story and the character, especially the main characters that they got into throughout the season And I definitely liked the tie-ins with Poe. I don't know his work as well as you do, but I was able to appreciate some of this through, through reading him in the past, which was really nice and good to see on the screen, especially done in such a disturbing, eerie, awesome way. Yeah. So I really liked how dark, mysterious and visually pleasing the show was.
0: Yeah, I've definitely nailed the visuals. Um, For me, I was worried at first when I saw the first trailer because I was like, oh, my God, this doesn't look like Poe at all. And they're just like making up shape-shifting demons and what is any. And then once I watched it, I had such a high, just like having fun picking out all of the little Easter eggs. Like, oh, my God, they just used some lines from that poem. Oh, my God, that's part of the plot of this story. Oh, look how they're just weaving it all together. So, yeah, I that probably definitely colored my experience in a positive way. But I also feel like Flanagan has gotten more mature, too, in the way that he puts together his stories. Yeah, so I I thought Hill House was scarier, but this one was more like perfect to me. Did you find this scary, this one?
1: I don't know that I found it scary as much as I found a lot of it kind of delightfully disturbing
0: okay yeah uh-huh.
1: it was unsettling at times and watching the characters some of them kind of unraveling was just really like
0: uncomfortable
1: in a good yeah. way if you like that kind of thing
0: mm-hmm. yeah which is very on brand for Poe but there was a lot of gore I guess
1: there was but I guess I'm pretty desensitized to that especially yeah. knowing that I am into the Saw movies and all that so for me, those are the fun, juicy parts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ex- no, I agree. But it was also people were talking about like, oh, but there were a few jump scares. I'm like, oh, there were jump scares?
1: There were few. I tried to take note of it and uh-huh. I, I was a little surprised with how few I noticed. And maybe, again, I could be desensitized to that as well or just have like blinked at the wrong
0: moment. But I, yeah. there weren't that many jump scares. I mean, I can really think of one. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about it on the other side of the spoiler section. So uh, speaking of Mike Flanagan, the creator, head writer, editor, director, he did have a lot of help in writing this, uh, so this shows the strength of collaboration. But you, are you in general a Mike Flanagan fan? How many of his other things have you seen?
1: I did see The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Beyond that, looking at the list here, um, Oculus, I loved I absolutely mm-hmm. love that movie. And Hush, I haven't seen that one. Loved Hush. I, know I thought that. that was so good. Uh Gerald's game, absolutely really interesting type of horror. If yeah. you if you haven't seen it, you should check that one out because it's not your typical scary movie, but it is still deeply unsettling.
0: I watched it last week.
1: Oh, nice. Okay. Because well, I just wanted
0: you... more like Carla Gugino and uh Bruce Greenwood.
1: Did you notice a small peep to that show in I mean, that movie in the show?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I also noticed in that show that there was a book called Midnight Mass.
1: Oh, okay. I missed that part. Yeah. So I do, I suppose we can say I do like Flanagan's work. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, I've seen all the Netflix stuff. Um, this is his last thing on Netflix, by the way. So I don't know, bummer slash exciting. I don't know. Um, but I've seen all the Halloween shows. and But the only movies I've seen are Geralds, Game and, uh, sorry gerald's game and doctor (laughs) sleep (laughs) Mm -hmm. so both stephen king yeah he he likes to reuse actors so it's nice to see them back i'm not by the way going to be going through and pointing out everything that everyone's been in because you can find those lists online and (laughs) there's so much to talk about anyway um but it is interesting he's married to kate siegel who played camille usher
1: okay the influencer
0: yeah Mm -hmm. i didn't really i don't know if i realized that either to be honest um We talked before about that, fingers crossed, he's going to do this Dark Tower adaptation next. That would be awesome. Yeah. This is one of your favorite series of books, right?
1: It is my go-to. Whenever anyone asks your favorite book, I just say it's the whole Dark Tower series. I was just blown away by it when I read those books. It stuck with me.
0: But neither of us saw the Idris Elba um, starring one that got... It didn't sound good.
1: I'm too scared to watch a bad adaptation of my favorite story, yeah, <laughs> one of yeah. my favorite stories,
0: yeah, but that's the thing is so Mike Flanagan, he wants to do five seasons of t v and two movies, so Amazon bulked of that, but I think like this again is showing that he has the audience, you know, he has the vision um and I think he's already done several Stephen King adaptations and and he knows how to do like weird, proper horror. And he knows how to, like, take the essence out of, a, out of what he's adapting and put his own stamp on it.
1: Yeah, and I could argue that he also, or support, he also is just really good at tying in little pieces of different parts of whether it's one series or a bunch of different works by the same author. Right. He's good at weaving it together into one cohesive story.
0: Yeah, yeah. So would you mind if he did the Dark Tower series, but, like, you know, wope things out of order, like it's a different turning of the wheel, so to speak.
1: I can't imagine he could possibly do it exactly as it is in the books. Yeah. It's too much. It's seven books plus a, another one that came in that I think fits between books three and yeah. four. So, yeah, he's got to do what he's got to do to make it work. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think you'd have to just go into it with those expectations of it's not going to be the exact same story, but hopefully he'll have a lot of the you know main elements and main feels that go with it.
0: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely watching his next, uh, his next work also in development apparently is a long gestating adaptation of the life of Chuck by Stephen King and also another of the season of passage by Christopher Pike. So that's the author that he based the Midnight Club series on, uh, which I know a lot of people were poo-pooing the Midnight Club series, but I loved Christopher Pike books growing up and I thought it was pretty good (laughs) just for teens. Um, Okay, so Ashley, you said that you have like just a certain level of Poe exposure. Do you think that's, do you think we got more exposure because we grew up in Philadelphia?
1: If so, I didn't ever know that was the reason. Okay. And honestly, the two that stick out to me the most are the Raven and the Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart always stuck with me as my favorite of his, but I didn't actually know he lived in Philadelphia, so I would not say that. At least I learned about more about him on purpose that because of that.
0: Well, it was um, because Philadelphia was like the center of the publishing in uh, the U.S. at that time. It was the center of his publishing career. So it makes sense. Basically, all of his stuff is published in Philly. But I, but I don't know how many because I got assigned to read it in school. You as well? Yeah. I don't know if that's something that's still done.
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yes, we did. I I remember reading them in school. That's probably why I read them at all, honestly. Yeah. But one of the ones I actually read and was happy to have done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, we got some good school reading. I hope kids today do too. But um yeah, then for me, like I, I read it and then I connected with some of it and then I got like the full collection and you know. Yeah, I think especially like he just appealed to the angsty goth kid at heart that I had. <laughs> you saw me as a teenager. Um I did see you as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> and he had in particular, there was one poem. Um, it was, he wrote this poem when he was 21 years old, but it wasn't published until like 25 years after his death. And it's called Alone. And I felt so seen by it. Um, okay, so I'm gonna it's a short one. So I'll just say it real quick. From childhood's hour I have not been as others were, I have not seen as others saw, I could not bring my passion from a common spring, and from the same source I have not taken my sorrow, I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone, and all I loved I loved alone. Then, in my childhood, in the dawn of a most stormy life was drawn from every depth of good and ill, the mystery which binds me still, from the torrents or the fountain From the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun which round me rolled in its autumn tint of gold, from the lightning in the sky as it passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm and the cloud that took the form, when the rest of heaven was blue, of a demon in my view. So yeah, that made me, I was like, oh, he gets
1: it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I can see that. I can see why you liked it.
0: But then, yeah, as I got older and learned more about Poe, I realized um, not everything's about me, and I could see that he had a much stormier life than I did indeed. So his darkness, you can see where it comes from. He was born January 19th, 1809 in Boston, but yeah, lived up and down the East Coast his whole life. His dad left when he was an infant, maybe died a year later, we don't really know. His mom, she was herself orphaned at a young age and brought up in a theater troupe. Uh, She was apparently quite talented, but she died before he was three. And so he had three siblings at the time, uh, his older brother, Henry Leonard, and a younger sister, Rosalie, who maybe had a different dad because the timing's suspicious. But, yeah, they were separated at death, uh, sent to different families, but kept in touch. And he was taken in and baptized, but not adopted by the Allens. He had a fraught relationship with his foster dad, John Allen, his whole life. It had to do with his gambling and his wanting to be a writer and, you know, all these things that a dad who hasn't adopted you and a son who's not what you hoped um, would fight about. They reconciled briefly when his foster mom died, like his mom of tuberculosis, and his older brother died in 1831 when Poe was 22, also of tuberculosis. He went into a military career, lied about his age to enlist, and he did pretty well with promotions, went to West Point, got himself kicked out on purpose, said, fuck my foster dad, I'm just going to be a professional writer. And he was one of the very first people to make a career from writing. So yeah, he was poor his whole life. Um, <laughs> And yeah, the men actually from his regiment, uh, when he was at West Point, all chipped in to help himself publish his first book of poetry. So it's dedicated to them. I always think it's really sweet. That is sweet. And he wrote, yeah, satire, poetry, short stories, one completed novel, like more, like plays and uncompleted stuff, a lot of essays. He was really mostly a literary editor and critic. Uh, and yeah he published all this in Philadelphia he had some infamous rivalries which were incorporated into the series and um he had a rather rich love life what do you know about his love life ashley
1: nothing but i'm excited to hear about it <laughs>
0: <laughs> well he had a few engagements or maybe engagements um many public flirtations sometimes with married women but he married one woman virginia eliza So middle name, same as his mom, because that was his first cousin. Not uncommon at the time. She was 13, though, when they married. He was 26. And I don't know. The weird thing to me is he's known her much longer. And he lied about her age at their wedding. But her mom was totally on board and lived with him even after her daughter died. And yeah, also from tuberculosis, obviously. So he lived with his mother-in-law until his disappearance and death. Does any of this change what you think of him, Ashley? Yikes. I mean, (laughs) that's pretty young, but I guess in the
1: 1800s, maybe it's not quite as big a deal as it sounds right now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he definitely had a pretty rough upbringing, a lot of tuberculosis, which is a big bummer for him. So I can see where there was some sorrow in his upbringing. Yeah,
0: I think. We should think about this tuberculosis when uh, we talk about the Mask of the Red Death episode.
1: Gotcha. Yes.
0: Um, When he died, though, the fun thing uh, is that various women who had known him came out of the woodworks and like they all wanted to establish their association with him. And a lot of what we know about him came through that. Some of his letters got published. Uh, Some of them fought back against a unsavory obituary that ruined his reputation which we'll talk a bit more about later. What do you think? Do you think that it's better for them to have said and like released private letters or do you think that they should have just kept that secret?
1: The the other lovers, you mean? Mm-hmm. Like other women? Yeah. Um I mean, I'm all about some juicy drama, so yeah, let it let it be known. <laughs> Let's hear about it. Let's stir some shit up. <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah. So, but he had no children, so he it was he was actually the end of his house, like the Ushers. Uh, and his death is a huge mystery. It happened October third, eighteen forty nine. He was supposed to be on his way to Philadelphia from. I think he was coming from his house, which was in like the equivalent of the Bronx, and somehow he ended up in Baltimore, in somebody else's clothes, dead in the street. So there's all these theories. Like, could it have been a binge gone wrong? Could it have been murder? Or one of the most popular ones is, have you heard of Cooping? I have not. It's like basically when they kind of kidnapped some people and then they keep changing their clothes and having them vote under different names so that their candidate would win. It was a way to like steal votes, but they would get them really drunk so that they would cooperate, I guess. But Poe was infamously sensitive to alcohol. So he had this obituary that said he was a huge drinker, but apparently other people said like well, he was just a terrible drinker. He could only have a drink or two and would just, you know, get way too drunk. And there's also similar rumors about opium like, you know, opium was just everyone was using it back then in the day. It was um it didn't seem like he had a special problem with it. But he did have a lot of gambling debts. That was a thing. Mm. <laughs> So, Ashley, have, have any of these details affected your thoughts about the show?
1: Well, you said his mom's name was Eliza. So yeah. there's an Eliza in the show. So yeah. <laughs> there's that. I caught that little detail. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. It all seems very kind of messy, which I guess you can see reflected in the show yeah. in some ways. Messiness of relationships and um, family ties. Romance, if you can call it that. We'll, well, I'm sure we'll get more into that with the episodes mm-hmm. and stuff. Substance use, I mean, I'm not surprised. It does seem fitting.
0: Yeah. He was, uh, he, like, I guess kind of invented the stereotype of writers in some ways. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he
1: inspired so many to be just like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, going to go get some opium. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let us bite into the meat of this body of harrowing Halloween horror before it starts to turn. After a quick commercial break, we're unlocking the tomb and letting all the spoilers rise from their no longer eternal rest. What's so special about Hero
1: Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods
0: contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co beware you are now entering the spoiler section make sure you have watched and or read the thing we are talking about if you don't want to be spoiled <laughs> all right and we're back and ashley are you ready to actually talk about the details absolutely i am ready <laughs> What did you think about the format of the show like the whole death per episode thing?
1: I liked it. I like when they delve into each character's story per episode and it, you know, each theme of it is that character's kind of unraveling and demise. And so I enjoyed the special detail that we got to learn about each of the children all while learning about, you know, the past and present of roderick and madeline
0: yeah yeah someone on the lorehounds discord called it succession meets final destination i thought that was rather apt or i saw people on twitter calling it the succession halloween special
1: (laughs) (laughs) i actually haven't seen succession but i can see the final destination comparison with the kind of imminent what's coming is inevitable and you know a lot of foreshadowing and hints throughout
0: yeah and somebody's gonna die each time yeah Yeah, succession, this is way more fun than succession, so. (laughs) (laughs) Noted. So John on the Lorehounds, he pointed out that the kids actually died in reverse order of age. I was too distracted, notice like trying to play the matching game as soon as the first episode was over. I was like, oh, here are the names and here are the episode titles and the job titles. And then I could figure out who was dying each episode. So that was just part of my like fun puzzle brain.
1: <laughs> were you were you right?
0: Yes, I was right who died each each episode, but some of them I wasn't sure about like uh Frederick, I knew he was going to die a uh, pit and pendulum by process of elimination, but I couldn't quite see how he tied into the story until we got there. Okay. But yeah, I also I also figured out that Lenore was going to die in the last episode because as soon as I was like Lenore lost Lenore the raven, oh no. <laughs> Right. I
1: caught right away that she was, you know, from she the raven. And yeah. I was actually um, naively hopeful for her until a certain point. And I was like, yeah, okay. Now it makes more sense that she's not going to make
0: it. As soon as they <laughs> said bloodline, I was like, well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and
1: well, at first I'm like sitting there like, well, well, but wait, bloodline, but, but what about Lenore? Like as if yeah. like, she was an exception. <laughs> I was like, no, dummy. She's part of it. Or at least she
0: didn't have to die horribly. So.
1: No, it was a very peaceful death. Poor thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this is called The Fall of the House of Usher, but that story actually really only has three characters, uh, and the raven only has two, but every other character introduced has, in this show, pretty much has an origin in Poe's writing and or real life, so I'm going to be pointing out those links as we go. Um, The way we're going to do this is we're going to retell the story in roughly chronological order. So first, we're going to talk about the full backstory of the twins in Dupin and Verna. And then uh, we'll get to the week of death, one episode at a time, with each character's arc explored in full when we talk about their death episode. Make sense? Makes sense to me. Awesome. So diving in with the twins... We have these are two of the three characters from the House of Usher, the other being the nameless narrator. More on that in a bit. Uh, So the twins are Roderick and Madeline. And Ashley, would you want a twin if you had to agree to enter the world together and leave it together?
1: uh i'm gonna say no because <laughs> i don't want to be responsible for someone else's death depending on my reckless lifestyle okay
0: that's interesting <laughs> that it goes that way and you're not worried about you getting killed
1: no i'm i'm the i'm the badass of the two twins probably <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously. <laughs>
0: uh, um these are like the two the two characters that had actually four actors playing each of them so What were your thoughts overall on on like the whole cast of characters playing them? Do you think that they held together? Like, did you see a coherent character through the ages? I did think
1: that they were coherent. For me, what stuck out the most was the younger adult versions and the older adult versions. I thought that they especially with Madeline, I thought that was extremely well cast. Yeah. just really well done. Both of those actresses, actors.
0: Yeah. So just to run through it. So for Madeline, uh, we had Kate Whittington playing the kid version, Lulu Wilson as a teen, Willow Fitzgerald as the younger adult, and Mary McDonnell as the older adult. And for Roderick, it was Lincoln Russo as a kid, Graham Versher as a teen, Zach Guilford as a younger adult, and Bruce Greenwood as an older adult. And Bruce Greenwood actually was a late stage replacement for actor Franklin Jella, who was released due to something about behavior stuff. Yep. Whoops. <laughs> but I mean, all that aside, like Bruce Greenwood absolutely nailed this character for me. I can't imagine anyone else.
1: No, he did a phenomenal job. I, yeah,
0: also couldn't see anyone else in the role. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we, we started with the kid versions. I I always love a flashback. I don't know. Is, is that like, is that weird? Like that I would just love that every episode just have flashbacks to backstory.
1: No, I also love it. It it feels like you're getting a sneak peek or just this insight
0: that you otherwise wouldn't have with a more linear story. Yeah. It feels like a secret somehow. Yeah. And speaking of secrets, yeah, there was, there was an affair and a forbidden house. So (laughs) juicy stuff to begin with. And yeah, so their mom, Eliza, was having an affair with, we'll talk about this name, Longfellow, her boss. And yeah, Roderick, one day he climbs a fence, he falls, he gets injured. The boss daddy is a total dick. And Madeline sees right through him. She always sees right through people. And their mom yeah, is very religious and bright eyed at this point. Now, it's interesting that we see that the House of Usher, now the House of Usher in the story is this like, I picture it on a moor somewhere in the highlands with this dramatic estate crumbling in desolation and isolated. And here it's like a suburban house in a street, but they did the crumbling part well. What did you think of the House of Usher itself?
1: So I I read the short story before watching just to see what sort of, hints and right. whatever it could give me a little more knowledge of the easter eggs that would pop in in the story in general and i've just was overwhelmed by poe's description of the house mm-hmm. in the short story i mean he just brought on this desolate sense of dread right. by describing the every little detail of the house and i i mean the old house in the show I was actually surprised it looked more somehow more run down than I expected but not in like a haunting way it was just like kind of a beat-up junker house the old one Mm -hmm, right so I mean I guess for me the house didn't quite pair with what I was expecting based on the short story
0: no yeah I don't know it was an interesting decision to make I guess they wanted to make him come from more humble beginnings because but it's interesting because it's like roderick in this case was more of an agent in his own life making things happen but it also means he was making the bad things happen whereas in the story he's almost kind of more of like a a victim of his birth it's kind of like an analogy for genetics
1: yeah i could see that
0: yeah yeah and they also in their book they say that they're charitable so i don't know anyway Mm, charitable with drugs (laughs) (laughs) uh so yeah. Poe's mother, as you pointed out, is Eliza Poe, Eliza Usher in the show, played by Annabeth Gish, and the Usher's, um, now the name that was used for the short story, it might have been family friends who watched him while his mom was sick and dying, or even more likely, there was a real-life spooky house with a reputation in Boston called the uh, Hezekiah Usher House, and... It was constructed in 1684, but then it was torn down in 1830. And there was apparently, the story went, a sailor and the young wife of the older owner, they were caught and entombed in their trysting spot by their husband. Very Poe's story. And when the Usher House was torn down in 1830, the two bodies were found embraced in a cavity in the cellar.
1: Whew, that's that's a rough way to go and to stay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah, I guess at least they had each other for their final cuddle better than, you know, being entombed in a wall alone. Yeah, that was that's that's a part
1: that's that got me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I said I would tell you more about William Longfellow, the dad. Uh, He was played by Robert Longstreet, by the way. He was actually named after one of Usher's real life rivals, but it was like kind of a one sided rivalry. So in 1841, Poe, he was this ambitious upstart editor of something called Graham's Magazine in Philly, and Longfellow was a prestigious academic at Harvard. And Poe asked Longfellow to become a contributor to his magazine. And Longfellow was like polite, but said, no, I don't have time for that. And Poe started review bombing him, accused him of plagiarism, said his writing was going out of style. This part might be true. He might have even invented a persona, someone he called Altus, which is Greek for nobody, to argue with himself about it in his own paper. And Longfellow seems to just have like sat back the entire time and chilled. And then after Poe's death, he gave Poe's mother-in-law some money. Class act.
1: Huh. Yeah, that's (laughs) hmm. okay.
0: But yeah, it wasn't as bad as Poe's other even greater rival, which we'll talk about in a second. Also a character in the show. Um, now, if you think there's a character in the show who's even more ick than Longfellow, the dad, who would you say? Wald. Yeah, that's the one. I mean, right? Like, that's really, <laughs> that's an easy answer right there. <laughs> that's the one. Now, if you, Ashley, were to pick a celebrity that you were going to beef with to get more attention for yourself and your career, who would you choose?
1: <laughs> uh... It's kind of mixed feelings, but I want to say like Miley Cyrus, because she kind of bugs me and annoys me, even though she's got a great voice. So uh-huh. I feel like I would have fun picking on her. Sorry, Miley.
0: <laughs> it's okay. She listens. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Come at me. <laughs>
0: well, that's fair. Um, I don't know. Who would I want to beef with? Like, I feel like I would probably go for some politician, but then it just gets like no fun.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And they'll dig you into the dirt faster than any singer will.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's no longer just fun Twitter stuff. (laughs) No, it's now you're buried in a house in the wall. Right. (laughs) At least give me somebody to cuddle with. (laughs) Yeah, nope, nope. Just some chains. Oh, man. (laughs) Maybe a mask. (laughs) A jester costume.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can make yourself laugh.
0: (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Um. By the way, one thing also about the fictional Longfellow in the show is his ruthless approach to parenting when he said, children are never too tender to be whipped, as apparently actually a Poe quote. So comes from his 1849 work, 50 Suggestions.
1: Maybe that's a reason he should not have had children. Thank you, Poe, for not torturing young minds or bodies. Maybe
0: he wasn't. I don't know. Like, I don't even know if he, his wife, he and his wife tried, but hmm. Hmm. So skipping ahead to 1962, we've got Mother Eliza, now bedbound. Uh, she's got this family illness that we'll talk about later, but she's refusing medical care because, you know, Jesus wouldn't want that or whatever. So when she dies, they decide, OK, we have to give her a private burial. But that ends up being a big oops because she is not quite dead yet. <laughs> Were you surprised by that? Uh, I was
1: I also just want to say that when they were digging the grave I was like are you kidding me you are very much in view of your neighbor's window like come on (laughs) think a little harder about what you're doing but also yeah I didn't expect her to not be dead
0: (laughs) (laughs) what was interesting okay so when they were burying the grave they had uh, two Poe poems mixed together one it's called For Annie from 1949 and it was one of the last things that he wrote And it was written for one of his flirty friends. Um, Her name was Nancy L. Haywood Richmond, but Poe called her Annie. And later after he died, she legally changed her name to Annie. So she was one of the ones who like some letters that we have from him were letters to her. But this poem for Annie, it seems to me like he's giving up on life. So thank heaven, the crisis, the danger is past. The lingering illness is over at last. And the fever called living is conquered at last. So just thinking that's one of the last things that he wrote, it always gave me an extra sadness. And then the other one, Lenore, it's from much earlier, but it's also celebrating rather than mourning death. Uh, And yes, that's also the name of the main character in The Raven.
1: Mm -hmm, Right.
0: But yeah, the premature burial is actually the name of his 1844 story. Yeah, there's a character who's actually afraid of being buried more than actually is buried themselves. So this seems more like the fall of the house of Usher, the way that Madeline ends in that story is, uh, yeah, she ends up getting stuck inside of a tomb when she's not quite dead yet, because I guess she had catalepsy.
1: Which is horrifying. That is one of the most terrifying things to think of. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, in the fall of the House of Usher, she's stuck in there for, what was it, like eight, nine days? Yeah. Yeah, I have to think about, like, that Usher house uh, that was in Boston with the people entombed in the walls, because these burial fears keep coming back again and again in so many stories, like, including the fall of the House of Usher, the Black Cat, and Telltale Heart, which are both in this series as well. Do you know about the Dead Ringers? the like real phenomenon the real thing that happened
1: i don't but i do know a gruesome short story i can briefly tell you oh, though, yeah but go ahead tell me dead no Ranges. no tell
0: me about it because i bet maybe it's, it's probably related
1: um I, it's from someone who does a podcast on true dark stories it's not all true crime but someone who was in seemingly dead but probably more in something like a coma and was buried alive in a cement coffin and but it was one that was above ground. And so her husband was like weeping against the stone wall of it and actually heard her banging only oh my because God. he had his ear pressed against it. He would not have heard it. But by the time they were able to drill through all the stone and get her out, she had actually died anyway.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So the protagonist, another nameless narrator of the premature burial, would like collect stories like that and then obsess over them. And then he finally got over it's one of the rare stories where he finds he survives the fear and gets over it because in the fall of the house of usher roderick definitely dies from the fear Mm -hmm. but yeah there was like a phenomenon back in the day where they had they would tie a bell to people's fingers when they buried them because they worried about that happening right now that you mention it yeah to be dead ringers yikes Yeah. And it's also interesting that the production team in one interview, they said that Madeline's AI, that the idea stemmed from a modern version of death by entombment, which was common occurrence in Poe's work. Yeah. The idea being that your mind is uploaded to a cloud like database, but your body is gone, came from the discussion after reading the premature burial. So, okay, interesting. I was slotting in the AI thing somewhere else. But yeah, the Eliza death is like more like Usher in other ways too. like the fact that they wanted a private burial for fear of outsiders, the fact that she came back in a storm only to take out the objects of her scorn with her as she went.
1: Yeah, that was a um, that was one of the first, I think, like freaky scenes that I was just like, whoa, when when she came back all messed up out of the grave and went and got her vengeance.
0: Yeah. Not, I mean, it was, it's a bit freakier in the story, I think, but then, yeah, that was, that was also the first death of the show, I guess.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, since we thought she was dead and she wasn't, or at least I did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: So in the 1962 story, we also have Madeline, uh, she's teaching Roderick how to be manipulative when they go to see Longfellow. Um, What do you, what did you think of that? Do you, Say, like, yeah, take baby bird under your wing, or do you think she was a corrupting in- influence on him?
1: I think she grew up with a really troubling childhood and was just trying to kind of figure out how to survive and be her own autonomous powerhouse in a way. And she took it too far, but she was really just trying to, like, not let other people dictate her life.
0: Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I wanted to point out just one cool thing during the storm sequence visually is, did you notice during the flashing storm, it was like every time the lightning flashed, there was color and then it would be black and white almost when it was in between.
1: I did not notice. I think the flashing was so much my eyes were just trying to adjust to the flashing lights <laughs> and I didn't notice color <laughs> or lack
0: thereof. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I just, yeah, the I was really impressed with the production design by Lauren Kelsey And apparently, I didn't actually notice this. It was pointed out to me, but this was confirmed by her that um, each of the siblings were assigned a color. So when they died, you would see their color. So Perry was red. Blue was Frederick. uh, Vic was orange. Camille was silver. Tammy was green. Leo was yellow. Madeline was purple. Roderick was gold. And um, Lenore was black.
1: I did not catch that. I did notice that there were color themes, but I didn't notice that there was strictly a color per person. That's really cool.
0: Yeah, I didn't put that together either. But yeah, that's a really cool production design detail. So moving into the 70s, we have our twins meeting two significant people. First is Roderick's wife, Annabelle Lee, played by Katie Parker. And she's named after a poem about lamenting a lost love. And he recites like Pretty much all of it, I think, throughout the series. So (laughs) you've heard that poem now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting because at first when he's reciting the beginning, in the beginning he sounds like he's being very possessive of her and then eventually he's mourning her death. Did you have the feeling that she committed suicide?
1: Huh. It did not. When he saw
0: her at the funeral, it sounded like she maybe killed herself after her kids left her. You know,
1: now that you say it, that does make sense. It didn't cross my mind in the show, but that uh,
0: that does make sense. Do you think she changed? Like, I always noticed that at first she was kind of to the side and usually holding a child, but then she got more assertive as time went by. But then also there was more friction between her and Roderick. I don't know if I would say for me that she felt
1: assertive as much as she just felt like she was more and more standing her ground. Right. Not like pushing, but just not being pushed. Like, um, right. just speak, I guess speaking up a little more, which is a bit assertive, but just still in a very kind way of and just like a moral way of saying what you're doing is wrong. Not like yelling or screaming or anything hostile like that, but she was more
0: standing her ground. Yeah, not pushing, but yeah, not giving up, mm-hmm. not giving way. And what did you think of Auguste Dupin, the detective cop? I thought he was a great character. I thought the actor did a great job.
1: I especially liked young, um, young Augie and how yeah. when they first brought him in, when he kind of forced his way into their apartment. He was so observant, like he, he was able to say so many details about their life that he they couldn't deny that he had a point mm-hmm. with trying to get them involved and trying to get them to do the right thing. So I just I felt like he was a really strong character in his youth. And then we saw him more passive in his older age. But yeah, I did. I liked his character.
0: Yeah, the young version was played by Malcolm Goodwin. And I was It was driving me crazy. I was like, I know this guy. He played a cop somewhere else. What is it? And I realized, I zombie. Did you ever watch it? No, I never saw that one. It's about uh, like sentient zombies who, yeah, they can live with it, but uh, they take over Seattle and it becomes a whole thing. Anyway, Uh (laughs) he plays a cop in that. Hmm. And then, yeah, the older version was played by Carl Lumbly and- Yeah, he just brought a great presence to it. But he was someone who had kind of realized that he had made the wrong decisions. And, yeah, we'll talk about his end. Mm -hmm. Um, But Dupin, the character. uh, So Poe was actually credited for inventing detective fiction. So Dupin is the prototype for characters like Sherlock.
1: That's awesome. I did not realize that. It also took me a second in the show to realize Dupin was the narrator of the short story. At first, I thought he was. right. um...
0: They slotted him into that role.
1: Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. I kind of suspected it. Then I didn't for a second, and then I was like, no, this is definitely the the narrator of the original. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because they use that as like the framing device uh to have him talking. Yeah, I think that was a smart way to combine things. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they use it to build the story of their past by mm-hmm. by making the narrator, you know, giving him more of a backstory
0: and a reason. A right. Not just somebody who showed up at yeah. the family house. And like old friend
1: <laughs> is a loose term. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Apparently, he didn't even know that the brother and sister were twins in the story. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, okay, you missed that somehow. <laughs> but yeah, so they didn't use the word detective back then in the 1840s, whatever. So Poe called these stories ratiocination. So the first one was The Murders in the Rue Morgue. So that's one of the ones that's in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh that was in 19- 1841. And then we had the Mystery of Marie Roger, which was based on a real life story, but was like considered a sequel to the first one year later. And then in eighteen forty-four, one some people might have heard of is the Purloined Letter, which wasn't adapted here, but and those are it. Those were the only three Dupin stories in like uh detective fiction has built upon the back of that
1: that's powerful to have the base be built on just three legs <laughs>
0: yeah a tripod yeah but yeah so in the stories he was a dupin was a french chevalier uh, he was an amateur detective so here he's a lawyer and in the stories he was a fallen member of a wealthy family whereas i don't get the sense that he came from a wealthy family in this case no
1: not in the financial way yeah
0: <laughs> yes, that's right, because he realizes at the end that that's not what wealth mm-hmm. is, of course, um, I think the most dupin depend- like thing that he did though was when he threw out in the courtroom a a fake informant to shake things up
1: oh yeah, that i I noted that is something that stood out to me. I thought that was an awesome move of his. It worked so well,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I thought that um, I thought Roderick was on to him in the courtroom. And they exchanged like a little look. I was like, oh, he's just causing trouble. But nope, he couldn't help himself. Like even after all of his kids are dead, he's like, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. But just like, tell me. Yeah. But who was <laughs> it? Who- <laughs> yeah. It's Perry, right? Poor Perry. <laughs> yeah.
1: kids uh, blame for I mean, everything.
0: Perry sucked. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> Uh, but so did Roderick a bit, uh, yeah. because in the 70s, he beat Dupin. So this is when we start seeing Rufus Griswold, who also sucks, played by Michael Trucco. And this is named after, indeed, after Poe's biggest rival. Um, people liked this guy way less than Poe, even though Poe was kind of like a difficult gambling whatever. <laughs> But yeah, Griswold was the kind of guy who was possibly closeted gay, but without other people. So, you know, mm. he published Poe's work, but then he replaced Poe and one of his jobs and got paid way more. <laughs> Damn. Um, and there was just a, a huge rivalry in their life. And when Poe died, he wrote the obituary under a fake name and said that, oh, he was now the executor of Poe's professional estate. And, like, showed a signed document from Poe's mother-in-law, which may or may not have been forged, but even if it wasn't, Poe's sister was alive, so she should have been the executor of his estate. But anyway, he didn't give any money to the family, and, yeah, it it kind of falls in line with the character of the show, where he's stealing bodies to forge science experiments and signing up random people pretending they're patients, um... Do you think he knew that the twins were really like the kids of Longfellow? Hmm. You mean Augie or Rufus Griswold? Uh, do you think Griswold, yeah, knew that
1: that the twins? I want to say no. He treated them like peons, like dirt under
0: his shoe. But I wondered if he did that because he knew that.
1: I guess that could be. like He thinks they kind of weaseled their way into wealth or tried to, and so he wanted to squash them as much as he could at first. <laughs>
0: Because um, when uh, when Roderick first came to pitch him the whole Ligodome thing, mm-hmm. he said something about being the kids of, you know, that his mom used to sit at the desk outside, and I felt like there was a look on his face, but I don't know if that means anything.
1: Well, he may have at least suspected it if, if he didn't
0: know. Yeah. Well, anyway, he was a, a freaking misogynist pig. Um, He sucked. Yes, but... Not as much as Frederick, but he sucked. He did suck, <laughs> but it led to his demise
1: so Mm -hmm. whatever
0: yeah yeah but uh, Dupin sure is bitter after the betrayal like just apparently says fuck my family I'm gonna go get this guy yeah dedicates his career to it why do you think Roderick betrayed him do you think it's because his sister told him to or do you think he wanted to
1: First of all, I just want to say that that was a fierce betrayal, and I think, you know, we knew it was coming because they had mentioned it before that he'd betrayed him, but um, it was, like, heart-wrenching if you didn't expect it, and I think that Roderick did it kind of threefold, like, because, yeah, Madeline was chirping in his ear, and she's obviously – I think she was the, you know, the brains of the operation, at least for the most part, at least in the beginning – she was the driver mm-hmm. behind getting him to do those things but also a sense of desperation cuz he did feel like he didn't want to give up first of all i think being able to support his family but more just being able to have money to support right. his his dream lifestyle um mm-hmm. and just a desperation of like wanting power like he was desperately wanted power and i think he was willing to do what it took to get there and madeline just gave him a little push in the right direction
0: yeah Yeah, because it did seem to me like his persona changed a bit over the years. He did. Like he was kind of the dopey go-along guy in the beginning. And then he, by the time he's an old man, he's the hard leader.
1: Yeah, he seemed definitely a little softer in the beginning, but I still think he wanted success. And I think with Mm -hmm. the right voice in his ear, being Madeline's, I think he was easy to sway
0: Yeah. Well, I guess he was the one, you know, who went climbing over the fence because he wanted to see what was on the other side. That's true. But didn't
1: she egg him on or encourage it? I mean, I feel like she was always there saying, do it, do it,
0: do it. Like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I was uh, saying with John on on the Lorehounds that she's kind of the devil on his shoulder. And then Annabelle Lee is like the angel on his shoulder. Yep. That makes sense. That's that's Mm -hmm. correct. Um, So the production team says, during the 1979 timeline, the thematics and idea of of being done in by one's own hubris ties back to uh, Metzengerstein, which, yeah, Metzengerstein is the story from which Frederick's name is taken, and it's also the story where they talk about uh, working with this chemist, Metzer. Anyway. So they say the show nods to it each time Roderick takes Dupin back to that time period. So they're saying this time period, it's all about how your hubris does you in, you know, is your fatal flaw.
1: Yeah, we see that in multiple characters, I'd say.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> um, and there's also a funny Easter egg. They uh, at one point refer to a character, Dr. Brevett, who's named after a character in The Man That Was Used Up, 1839, um, who... Yeah, they keep hearing about this character and weird references like, oh, they will have to be assembled piece by piece. Luckily, there's such advancements in technology. And then when Dr. Revit shows up, then it turns out that it's a war war hero who he's lost so much like he's basically become Anakin Skywalker and he has to be assembled because most of his body is prosthetics. So I have to wonder if that's talking about something about this. Uh, you're talking about Roderick wanting that. And also about Dupin wanting to uh, provide for their family, this whole like toxic masculinity thing. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I got <laughs> distracted because my, Hi, <clears throat> my
1: assistant wants to eat my headphones. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but yes, then we get to the faithful night. Uh, so... Do you know the story of the cask of Amontillado? I have heard of it, and I don't know it. Okay, so basically, the narrator is just like, uh, fuck this guy, Fortunato, which is funny That's Griswold's company that's taken over It's called Fortunato Pharmaceuticals, but he's like, I hate this guy, Fortunato, and it, they're at, like, it's carnival, and so Fortunato is dressed like a jester, mm. just like Griswold is in this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, okay, here's some amontillado, which is a type of sherry, and gets him a little bit drunk, and says like, oh, I've got some good stuff. Come back with me to this isolated basement place, Um, and basically, it's a similar thing where he knocks him out, and then uh, Fortunato wakes up to realize he's being walled in. Oh, okay, very similar. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they basically just took that story because it was, it's one of the ones, it's one of my favorites. And other people have said the same thing. And then when you look at the episode titles, you're like, oh, no, they didn't do the cask of Amontillado. And then you watch it and you get to the end. and You're like, oh, yeah, no, they did the cask of Amontillado.
1: Maybe they didn't <laughs> name it on purpose. So it was a bit of a surprise when it came.
0: Yeah, I guess so. As soon as I saw him in the Jester costume and then they offered him Amontillado, I'm like, oh, here we go.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but yeah, the Jester car moment is the one jump scare that I can think of.
1: So it's kind of funny because that's the one I I looked down for a second and realized that something happened. So I made Jose rewind the show so I could <laughs> see the jump scare. But then once you know it's coming, it's less jump scary. Did he jump? Uh, he doesn't jump. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, fair. <laughs> but you heard like the music go me. Yeah, something. I saw
1: to the top corner of my eye that something yeah. happened. And I was like, wait, what was that? <laughs> like, of course, I blink at the wrong moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. What do you think about them making the central family business be pharmaceuticals? Given you know the Sacklers of it all,
1: right? So, I mean, I instantly made that connection. It felt like the Sacklers. Um, I I think it was fitting because a lot of um, a lot of the story, first of all, was about addiction, not just about substances, but I feel like being mm-hmm. addicted to power or money. But also, I also thought it was fitting because just. Throughout the series, there was a lot of poisoning, both literally and I think figuratively, but a lot of literal poisoning, like drugs and what they're mm-hmm. putting in drinks or, or in, with injection. And it just felt fitting that they're poisoning each other. They've also poisoned millions and millions of other people.
0: Right. And it's
1: one of the top stories I'm aware of, of people, at least in modern day, of people getting an insane amount of wealth and power over mm-hmm. just destroying so many other people, and framing it in a way that's positive. So it just felt really manipulative and fitting for this family to have that be their
0: ladder to the top. So you think that they nailed that, basically?
1: I do. I think it was an appropriate business for them to be in.
0: Yeah, no, it's the cool thing about this adaptation is it does take these stories from, you know, the, the 1830s, 1840s, and sets them in the modern day. And if you're going to have a rich out of control family, what's more topical than to make them in pharma. Mm -hmm. And it's also appropriate because they're selling opioids and there's a lot of opium references in Poe's work. Also the drug, it's called Ligodome, which might be a reference to a Poe story called Ligeia, which is the tale of a woman called Rowena who dies of an illness, but is resurrected as Ligeia, who is a narrator's first wife. And so that's, one of two stories referenced in this show about a female character being replaced by a dead wife. So, hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Juno, the speaking of wives, the uh, young wife, apparently, who all the stepkids wish didn't exist, she straight up calls the Legodome heroine. She compares it. She used to be addicted to heroin and now she's addicted to Legodome.
1: Right. I I really first of all I thought it was kind of funny. I know it's sad but like how they referred to her as, as like it like oh why is it yeah. speaking. I was like oh my god <laughs> these people are so horrible.
0: Um And the the worst was with uh Tammy and she freaks out her presentation and throws a thing and she didn't even mean to hit her but it goes oh right, in the, right head, in the head. Yeah.
1: I mean I mean she seemed to hate her the most. I think she's the one I'm thinking of that was specifically like why is it talking? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god you are so horrible. But I also like the Juno you know, Being such a representative of the struggle with addiction was -hmm. the one with the clearest head.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that it's true. Especially in the end. Yeah, she was actually, you know, she was the anti-wicked stepmother.
1: Yeah, yeah. But no one saw
0: her that way. (laughs) She had all the wicked stepkids. She sure did. (laughs) It was also interesting when Madeline puts one of the last bricks into the tomb with Griswold. It says on it, written, you are so small which is kind of petty, but it's also what Annabelle Lee said to her at one point earlier uh, when she corrupted her husband. And it's also, it reminds me of uh, something from Gerald's Game, which I watched recently. Um, so at the end, Carla Gugino's character goes up to another character that has tormented her and says, you are so much smaller than I remember. So mm. I'm wondering if this is like a Mike Flanagan idea. Okay.
1: I I liked that on the brick, especially because it was what was said to Madeline earlier, because I think that may have shown that, like, Madeline comes off as this character that nothing affects her, right? Like, she's just too strong Mm -hmm. to have anything make her feel bad about anything. But that must have stuck with her enough because it made her feel such a way that she knew it would make someone else also feel small.
0: Exactly. Well spotted, yeah. And then the next part of the story we skip to is 43 whole years later which is, quote-unquote, two weeks ago, like two weeks before the murder week, and they're in the courtroom, and it's so sad. This is the last time they're all alive together, and it's litigation in the courtroom, and uh, that they're going to have the mole idea planted, so their last dinner is tainted with that. So, Ashley, yeah, we'll talk about the Pym Reaper more toward the end of the story, but what did you think of Mark Hamill? what did you think of luke skywalker playing the dirty lawyer
1: i thought he was amazing i loved yeah. everything from his demeanor to his voice like he had this gravelly raspy voice throughout it um he was just such a cold to the point but like matter of fact knew everything like what to say what not to say to keep you perfectly in line he was such a well-poised well-thought-out character
0: yeah, I thought yeah he was unrecognizable in this role. And indeed, the voice played a lot of it. Um, the one thing, though, I thought the character was great. No complaints. But I thought it was a lot more like telling us than showing us. So he wasn't like nothing amiss with him. But he wasn't necessarily as interesting to me as some of the other members of the quote unquote Usher crime family. <laughs>
1: I, I love think- that they
0: called them that in court. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think he just kind of. He gave a sort of structure and backbone to the family that they needed that they didn't have without him. Right. Like they were kind of flailing and doing their own crazy things all over the place. And he kept kind of it's like herding cats, right? He's like reining them in and he's like, no, no, come here. Stop saying that. Come here. Don't say this. Say this. Um, He just kind of gave them a shadowy structure voice in their ears that they needed to listen
0: to or else they were going to get themselves in deep shit early on. How do you think that he met them? Wrong answers only.
1: (laughs) um i think he met them when they were all at a circus together and they were accidentally mm-hmm. seated next to each other and they were like wow look at that jester he's so cool i love mm-hmm. jesters so much i They're i love him whimsical. so much i want to keep one in my house forever
0: and he's like me too <laughs> Can you have a wall installment yeah <laughs> like how forever <laughs> are we talking <laughs> does it have to stay alive but
1: to be honest I actually did think at one point later on in the series that he might be somehow connected to Verna like that she he could be Mm. someone bidding her work helping them stay in I don't know somehow I thought they were connected until I realized they weren't
0: yeah I mean it was interesting he's like basically he and Dupin are the only ones who say no to her yeah anyway
1: yeah that was really I I liked that they were both powerful in their own way and not in any right. way like the power that the main family was seeking
0: right he's like i'm gonna be powerful in jail now yeah. <laughs> or power by my own well. choice yeah 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 it's interesting at this trial the there's text from the tamerlin poem spoken which is the poem that the character tammy's named after and it's about a warlord's regrets so i think we're starting to get the hint of roderick's regrets here Yeah. And also, yeah, it's interesting that the judge of the trial, John Neal, played by Nicholas Lee, he is also named after a critic of Poe's. So (laughs) (laughs) it's really got all the petty beef in here.
1: He sure does. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so we've caught up in all the backstory. So we're going to get into the episodes. We're going to do each episode one at a time and just focus on the arc of the basically of the child that dies that episode. So we start with episode one, Midnight Dreary. Now, this is the one that's different from all the other ones, because this is basically lining up how the story is going to go, giving us the backdrop. The title comes from one of the first lines of The Raven, the poem, obviously. Uh, We'll talk about that poem in the last episode. And yeah, it opens with Pink Floyd's Brick in the Wall, (laughs) which... (laughs) When it opens, we don't know why we see flashes that only fully make sense after the finale. So we've got like the two brick walls. We've got the one that we find out that uh, Griswold's in. And we've got the party one from the New Year's Eve party in a bar that may or may not actually exist. And then we get actually right up front flashes of each kid's horrible death. Were you lost or intrigued when this started, Ash?
1: I think maybe a little bit of both. Honestly, that one of the things that caught me very first, is very small, but I was like laughing because Augie pulls up in a Tesla taxi and I was like, what the hell? (laughs) 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 What is this? Is he rich or the taxi's rich? What's happening here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tesla taxis are pretty common here, but I wonder if that was a sponsorship deal. That's funny. I see Teslas all over, but I have never seen a Tesla taxi. Oh, okay. Um, but I actually forgot he showed up in a taxi at first when I first watched it. And then at the end, uh, when he runs out, I'm like, where's your car, man? (laughs) (laughs) Oops. (laughs) He's just like stuck there. How is he planning to get home? (laughs) Hope. (laughs) I guess he's a city guy. Yeah, we also get in the first episode, we get the setup of the two men talking, which ends up being the framework. It's a nod to obviously the fall of the House of Usher short story, which is a lot about the narrator and Roderick talking uh, with Dupin and the narrator role. But it's the whole framework device they use to tell the story where Roderick asks Dupin to come to the decaying Usher house and he's going to tell him everything. He calls it a confession, but maybe it's also an apology. Uh, what did you think about the whole talk between the two old men? Did you find it riveting, boring, somewhere in between? I think I
1: wasn't expecting that much. I Overall, the episode, I think I felt like it didn't have like a huge wow factor. Like a lot of pilots have like this really grasping moment or are all kind of more exciting. And it was all, I thought, a bit slower than I was expecting going into it. Okay. But I think it made sense more as just a straight setup episode. Mhm. Yeah.
0: So, if you were watching weekly, do you think you would have continued after the first if we weren't doing this?
1: I think so, but maybe maybe only because of the writer and the fact that it was based on Poe. Like I don't know if if seeing that if I hadn't have known of Edgar Allan Poe and if I hadn't have seen any of the other work done by Flanagan, I'm not sure if I would have been as committed to it as i was with
0: the context okay um and did episode two hook you more
1: yes absolutely uh yeah no episode two picked right up i uh i hated perry (laughs) i loved like the the whole red like mask of the red death scene i also i read that short story too before watching that one i didn't read most of them but i did read that one okay
0: and I, i liked
1: some of the ties with that and um just little things in that one like like perry's friend using a metal butt plug to crush his pills <laughs> I miss <laughs> um, them. that made me laugh and um the fact that like we find out early on you know that there's like sibling not rivalry but like distaste i right. guess because freddie was in his phone as dickwad and his, <laughs> it was just like a picture of his nipple or something yeah. on his phone so there were things that uh got a little more exciting and funny and also definitely gruesome in that one so
0: yeah, that had one of the, or maybe the most gruesome finale, uh, maybe tied with seven. But yeah, it's it's probably like the most direct adaptation of all the episodes, because the story, The Mask of the Red Death in 1842, it's basically about a very wealthy prince type figure called Prospero. So Perry's full name in the show is Prospero Usher, goes by Perry, played by Sarian Sapkata. And yeah. He also was known by the Gucci Caligula in the show, which I I could have seen a little more Caligula from him, to be honest. I, I wanted him to stick around and like do terrible things for another episode or two.
1: <laughs> I mean, he was planning on some terrible things like the fact that he invited Morella just out of I thought mm-hmm. it was more out of interest, but it turns out it was more out of like blackmail. Yeah, which is really shitty. Like when I saw him with the camera feeds, I was like, man, that is this guy's. Is- that
0: yeah well verna saw it all too she sure did <laughs> so verna in this case she was representing the death figure so yeah so prospero in the story he throws this ball because he's like everyone's dying of this bleeding sickness and the peasantry and he's like well not us rich folk we're just gonna party until this is all over and they're having a grand old time until someone comes in with the mask of the red death and so Verne is definitely playing that figure and that person brings the plague to the party. And yeah, in this case, we've got death by cuddle puddle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Literally a puddle though. Cause I I've thought about it, especially with the start of the next episode and it's like, they probably melted together Mm -hmm. like they probably stuck together yeah oh just being like
0: the just being the cleanup crew that has to separate oh man now just
1: burn it burn it down (laughs) burn the whole thing
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah the so the water tanks were storing some pretty shady stuff but i guess they managed to just cover that up immediately
1: yeah i mean they mentioned it and i did that was uh messed up that roderick knew what like what was in there he knew that that substance was in there i guess he didn't expect anyone to go use the building but that it was a preventable
0: thing yeah. was horrible yeah so do you think that perry's partners deserve to go down too because i felt bad for them when he's like threatening one of them with a fork to the chin because they wanted his uh black-headed gold eggs from key haven which is apparently a real delicacy you need a license for and there's like a secret ritual to collect them
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that.
0: But it doesn't Um, deserve a knife to the throat or a fork to the throat.
1: They didn't seem like evil like he did. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they were kind of little leeches on (laughs) this rich, druggy guy. So there's something to be said in that, that like they're choosing to kind of latch on to someone else who's an asshole. Like they chose that. So that speaks of their character a little
0: bit. All right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. One more fun fact about the episode is that uh, Perry yeah it's supposed to be his nickname for prospero but it seems to refer also to the last name that edgar Allan poe used when he lied in his enlistment for the military all right so what about episode three was that that's the one that i always had trouble remembering the most what did you think of that one murder in the rue morgue camille's death um it was on the bottom of my list of the
1: deaths Mm -hmm. if i had to rank them for sure i guess especially because you didn't fully see it but I mean, that's where we first see Verna as another character, I think. Or maybe, no, I guess we we may have seen her in the first episode. Maybe I'm not thinking about it.
0: Well, we saw, yeah, she was just in that uh, lacy hood and stuff. So she just looked like a woman in the first episode.
1: Right. So then in this one, she was very different from in the second episode. So it's like, okay, what's going on with this person? She looks really different. She has an accent now. I also, this episode had that lemon speech, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. Like I, it, it, the whole thing was so good, but like just talking about how you can make, turn a lemon into anything and she, they're like, you know, you yeah. get a Kardashian to suck a lemon in a leaked sex tape and yeah. like, you can make millions. That speech was pretty epic. So I really did appreciate that. But um,
0: yeah, that was like, there's a really divisive opinion about that. A lot of people think it's the best. And i read something online. It was like, this is the worst speech that's ever been written. Like, okay, calm down now.
1: <laughs> oh, I really enjoyed it. I, the whole time while it was happening, I was like, Oh, yeah, this is great. <laughs> um, but also that episode had another jump scare. And I'd say the first one that got me because I had missed the jester one. But when older Roderick was talking to Augie and the, the Camille, like bloody Camille jumps out and Roderick throws his expensive whiskey glass, which first of all, that whiskey costs more than I make in like two days. <laughs> so can you just chill out and not throw it? But yeah, that was a that one got me a bit of a jump scare there and also a good line that came from that one was Griswold, Rufus Griswold talking to them about like ideas and he said an idea is nothing an idea is a fart that your brain makes. Yeah, I love that line. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Such a good one.
0: <laughs> it was also one of these episodes when you know, Frederick wasn't so heinous at first, but I, I love his whole shtick with his daughter when he like apologizes for swearing and then swears again. Like He's like, yeah. he's like that fucking guy, sorry, honey, that fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, that made me laugh too. Yeah, so this episode, Murder in the Rue Morgue, uh, the story is obviously it was the first one with Dupin. And Dupin, he investigates a crime scene in Paris at a house on the Rue Morgue, which is a street. So it's not actually referring to a morgue. Uh, But a woman and her daughter named Camille have died violently, and he eventually deduces that the culprit must be an escaped orangutan, which explains how the bodies got so mangled with one stuffed up the chimney. So in this, we have uh, Camille, obviously doomed, played by Kate Siegel, wife of Mike Flanagan. And in this case, Rue Morg, it's R.U.E., So the Roderick Usher Experimental, which apparently they called the Rue Zoo and then called the Morgue because now they know better that the animals aren't just being tested on. They are dying. Yeah, this was another like there's a lot of messages packed into this show.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they're putting a lot of details in there.
0: But yeah, Vic, she's pressured to go like to press ahead unethically because she doesn't know why it is. But her father thinks that this device will cure him and I guess the family of, well, we'll talk about their whole disease that's revealed later and whether or not that's actually I'm, I have questions about it.
1: Learning uh, that Victorine cuts the dead apes up to bring them out in pieces, or at least that was rumored, yeah. but uh, that, that was like, oh, yikes. Okay, so some gross shit happens here.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that actually seems to be a reference to the Telltale Heart, which is the name of the episode where she dies. And in the Telltale Heart story, the character murders someone and then dismembers them and puts them in the floor. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that I can't wait till we talk about that episode, actually, because I really liked it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just one more Easter egg from this episode is uh, Lander Pharma, which is a, a competitor for Fortunato. It's named after Lander's Cottage, which was the last story that Poe ever wrote in 1849. It's really more of a like peaceful vignette inspired by his cottage where he lived with his wife and mother-in-law in New York. Hmm. Um, no, yeah, not really a competitor. <laughs> Episode four, the black cat. I don't know. It's one. Did you think I would uh, not like because I'm a cat lover? But I kind of loved it.
1: This one I did like, but not as much as the Telltale Heart. Right. Um, but yeah, I liked the black cat, especially because I think we really start to see unraveling of mm-hmm. characters. Um, Leo, you know, you see him just starting to go crazy, and I really, I always enjoy seeing that in scary movies because it's just if it's done the right way. It really gets to me like the losing your mind thing if it's and and especially when it could be from something real or paranormal. So like he's right. doing all these drugs like there is a logic explanation for why it's happening. But realistically, it's not the drugs. Right. Which is crazy. Like the real answer is the not real answer.
0: <laughs> and we start to see more of what Verna's capable of in this too. She right. does a lot of shape shifting in this one.
1: Well, and we got a hint of that in the last one when right. she became the chimp. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, that was the first hint. And now it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to play. But yeah, so the story, the Black Cat story itself, it's from 1843, and it's about a man who becomes an alcoholic and he starts mistreating his animals and he accidentally kills his pet cat named Pluto, just like in the show. And so he ends up getting another one, but he starts to hate that cat and he decides he wants to kill it, but his wife gets in the way and so he accidentally kills her. And so he buries her in the wall with the cat but the cat is still alive and it yowls and leads the police to the body that's awesome yeah
1: (laughs) you know it kind of reminds me of king's pet cemetery of like burying a cat and it comes back and it's a murder cat
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah this was um uh, so the whole thing with the eye popping out that that's what happened with his cat in the story oh wow Yeah, that was gruesome. But it was also, did you notice later when we saw the pictures, um, when they were collecting all the pictures of Verna and the picture in the shelter of her holding the animal, she's holding a big rat, not a cat?
1: Oh, no, I didn't. But I mean, definitely noticed that she's wearing a collar. (laughs)
0: Right. True, true. Like a cat collar. Speaking of cat collar, you know, he kept going on about the Gucci collar. But uh, we saw the cat at the end when Leo was dead. Pluto was alive. He just went away for a few days. So I missed that. So the, the dead cat we saw was all in his imagination. Yeah, it was all Verna messing with him and or his disease. Well, they just got some points back from me because they didn't kill the cat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that they were going to kill because the wife dies. I thought that they were going to kill his boyfriend, Julius. Yeah. By the way, the name Julius comes from the Journal of Julius Rodman, which is a fictionalized account of the first expedition across the Western wilderness. Um, So nothing to do with this character, but that's where the name comes from. But yeah, I seriously thought he was going to get deaded. So he and Pluto have one of the happiest endings.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Go Julius and Pluto.
0: Yeah. Go live a better life somewhere else with new people. in In an apartment that doesn't have holes in the walls
1: yeah oh my god he ruined that apartment so hard yeah <laughs> also with a thor hammer which is really fun yeah
0: that's true because i noticed it a few scenes earlier i was like oh yeah there's a thor hammer there and then okay yep <laughs> that's set up <laughs> Payoff.
1: yeah that was great
0: <laughs> yeah so leo full name napoleon leo usher played by rahul Kohli. and so this character he's a gamer he's a cheater like that was actually one of the shocks for me when um He's like, oh, you're coming up. And then there's like a girl kneeling before him.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. And an unapologetic drug addict. He's like, you know what you signed up for, baby.
1: Yeah. I did like the gaming tidbits, though. Was he the one playing? Um, was it Mortal Kombat? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was the other one. And also he had the Xbox XO, you know, triangle square a little like ornament on his bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. He was full geek.
0: He would be the one that I would probably be into, but, you know, he's a dick, so.
1: (laughs) At least, you know, you'd
0: survive. That's true. Uh, I do wonder if Julius, like, survived in part because he didn't get close to the family. Like, he's like, I want to meet your family. He's like, no. And maybe that saved him in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe. That's good, then. The only good thing that Leo did.
0: (laughs) So his name, Napoleon, comes from a character in a story called The Spectacles in 1844. And it's about a guy who refuses to wear glasses because he thinks it makes him look dorky or whatever. And so he ends up marrying someone, uh, puts his glasses on, and finds out that she's an old toothless woman.
1: <laughs> That's really bad eyesight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not sure how it relates to his character. I mean, I guess you can see. A certain vanity or a certain refusing to look at reality.
1: So, but this episode had another one of the jump scares that you say you didn't see, but when he was in the closet and he's like peering behind the clothes and the cat jumps out, that literally, like sometimes it's just a, but that made me physically move my body.
0: (laughs) Was that when, when his eye gets scratched, that for me was like, and
1: Which was also gruesome seeing the eye like just scratched right down the middle. Yeah um that was pretty cool and this episode something that made me laugh was when his brother freddie came and yeah. wanted some coke just to take the edge off he i mean he gave him what i understand to be quite a large amount of cocaine <laughs> i
0: was like why well, he just like left it out because he was dealing with his own shit he's like okay whatever you're dealing with not interested i'm just gonna take this and go <laughs> right <laughs> yeah distracted <laughs> okay so uh next episode this one i know that you like a lot the Telltale Heart. Yes, yes,
1: I really liked this one, especially because I am most familiar to the short story. And uh, I really liked how they portrayed it in this episode.
0: Yeah, so the short story for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically there's a narrator nameless, as usual, who lives in an apartment with an older man, and he develops an irrational dislike for this man. He says it's because one of his eyes is glazed over or it doesn't really matter. He just he goes at night to stare at this man asleep. And then chickens out and decides to do nothing about it. Until one night, he goes and looks at him and the eye is open. And he's like, that's it. You're dead. Kills him. Dismembers him. Buries him in the floor. And starts to feel guilty. So he hears the boom, 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 boom. The heart is haunting him. And the police come. And he's about to get away with it. But he just can't take it. So he confesses. So not quite the horrible end of this story, actually. No,
1: but um, I think the driven to insanity by a heart or th- heart thumping mm-hmm. or similar noise that is only you can hear.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, the main death of this episode is Victorine Lafourcade, played by Tania Miller, and the name. It's uh, one of those side stories we talked about how the character in the premature burial would collect these like side stories of people who were buried prematurely. <laughs> and uh that's the name of one of the people it was a young girl of illustrious family and wealth and of great personal beauty who was buried alive by her abusive husband then exhumed and resurrected by her lover uh so this version's kind of the opposite <laughs> <laughs> it's almost
1: like she tried to resurrect her lover
0: yeah well yeah I- instead of her lover resurrecting her she takes her lover oh, oh. down <laughs> i see what you mean yeah And her lover, by the way, played by Paola Nunez, uh, Dr. Alessandra Ruiz, and this seems to come from a play called Politan, which involves a suicide pact uh, set in Rome during the 16th century, and Alessandra is uh, part of a love triangle that results in murder. So, uh, not a direct tie, but, you know, death, death, death. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love the scene. I love the use of music in this in general, but I loved how they used Total Eclipse during that breakup scene.
1: <laughs> that one went over my head. <laughs> <Turn> around.
0: <laughs> um, what about the wicked game needle drop in episode two, by the way, at the party? No,
1: nope, missed that too.
0: That was maybe my favorite. But it was cool how they changed the heartbeat sound by having that mesh involved. So you hear like this extra squishing with it.
1: Yeah, it was like a squish squeak, like almost you weren't quite sure. It sounded like a heartbeat, but there was something different about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Did you notice that like all the siblings seem to push away their partners right before they die?
1: I did not notice, but if that's the case, it didn't work for most of them. Mm. I mean, they still were brought down with the usher. Right. Who died for the most part.
0: Yeah, I was thinking those for the most part, but actually I think it's like maybe about half died. I guess,
1: yeah, Camille's uh, assistants didn't die, right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe it's a part of their fate then, because the others weren't necessarily supposed to die. It was supposed to just be the bloodline mm-hmm. based on the pact that was made or the deal that was made. So maybe it wasn't even them on purpose pushing them away for any reason, but just that like they were not meant to
0: be there at yeah. the end. Well, it was like uh, during Perry's episodes, Verna tried to warn Maury to go. And she stayed for whatever reason. But you have to think like the party, like that Perry took down the most people with him, but that party was full of rich assholes. So maybe Verna was like cashing in. I know.
1: I mean, like, are you kidding me? $20,000 just to go to the party? Like that's not, I don't, mm -mm, that's not something I'll ever (laughs) even (laughs) dream about in my life. But I do, I like to think that she somehow led to, Maury still being alive mm-hmm. like somehow she got a little bit far enough away like to the wall or like what i mean she was kind of found among the bodies but like when that happened i was like i really hoped that she got out because i really liked morella mm-hmm. and then having her be the one that's like gasping and still alive the next episode I'm like well maybe she's still alive because
0: because verna whispered to her right right she was distracted which ends up being too. huge
1: for the end because like she's the one who kind of Like, changes the whole trajectory of that
0: family's money. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, it just takes her daughter dying. (laughs) Yeah, sadsies. But she's also, I think she's interesting because she's one of the more morally gray characters. Because she did go to that party in the first place and lied about it. And I understand her husband's a bit of a douche. Obviously, by the end, more than any of us realized. But... You know, she is in some ways the more morally gray one, uh, which to me makes her more of the interesting character because it seems like all the other partners are just absolute saints. Like, what do they put up with with these people?
1: Yeah. But again, just like with Perry's minions, they choose this. They choose to leech on to these horrible rich people because they want to taste of that wealth and power. Like mm. that, I think that in itself makes them a little bit tainted.
0: Yeah. No, that's true. Because, yeah, why would... Why would Maury be with Freddie in the first place? You know, like she's out of his league in terms of everything but name and money. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of gold, episode six, Goldbug, uh, what did you think of this episode with uh, Tammy's death episode?
1: I loved her death, honestly, Mm -hmm. and it was another unraveling. It felt like it kind of went back and forth with the unravelings where there was a... Like a reason it could have been, like with the drugs with Leo, and then just kind of someone going crazy on her own, which is Victorine. Mm -hmm. But then Tammy was also more of one that could have had a reason with her lack of sleep. Right um so I just I loved her unraveling I thought and it was so cringe when she was on stage like yeah when she yelled you know like why the fuck are you here and yeah. then it just got worse and worse and worse and it's just like oh my god this is so horrible I love it <laughs> um and I I loved her death I thought it was one of the prettiest scenes in the whole series yeah. with the glass falling like I thought that was just gorgeous and then the huge slate of mirror in her neck was
0: mm, right up my alley Her face at the last moment when she realizes it's going to happen. Yeah. So the episode, it's called Gold Bug, which is a post story. It was actually the most popular story, apparently, when he was alive, because it's really about code cracking. And it's apparently because of this story that cryptology puzzles are popular in newspapers today. So uh, it was a quite influential story, but it has other than like that little gold bug that they show. Has nothing to do with (laughs) with the plot of this episode. What does have to do with the plot of this episode is another story called William Wilson from 1839, and that was inspired by. For a while, when Poe was young, he went to boarding school around London, and this story it's about a guy named William Wilson, a kid who is haunted by a doppelganger, and the doppelganger keeps messing things up for him, and it finally leads to a lethal fight. And as he strikes his killing blow, he realizes he is looking into a mirror and he has killed himself. So that seems, yeah. And also her husband in this episode is Bill T. Wilson. But it does seem to be, yeah, relating to her. Um, what did you think about her whole voyeur thing? What do you think that was about?
1: It first made me laugh because honestly, I don't, you don't really hear of a woman cuck. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I know they're out there. That's, you know, to each their own. Um, but I also kind of had a like, because a, it's like, oh, she wants them to be romantic. Like, that's so boring. <laughs> 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 but um, I think then it, it could show kind of her hollowness because she doesn't, she's like not able to feel those emotions yeah. on her own. So maybe her only way to like, get excited about it is to see other people do it like she's watching a movie almost. So it kind of gave her this emptiness that seemed fitting with her character.
0: Yeah. So she's named after the poem Tamerlane, which was one of the first poems that Poe ever wrote. It was, yeah, actually he wrote it when he was 17. Wow. But it's about a conqueror who laments giving up on a true love he once felt for a peasant woman because, yeah, he didn't want that quiet, simple life. He instead decided, you know, to go pursue his whole conquering thing. Uh, but at the end... He laments, and yeah, I have to give credit to Mashable for pointing out how the end really does seem to capture a character. It says, I reached my home, my home no more, for all was flown that made it so. I passed from out its mossy door in vacant idleness of woe. What was there left me now? Despair, a kingdom for a broken heart. So about pushing everything away. And finding that uh, you have nothing left.
1: Yeah. I mean, she was horrible to her husband. Mm -hmm. The things she said in the end were just, oh, my God, you're just such a terrible heartless. Like, it's just very
0: cold person. But she did have that moment where she felt sorry for Juno.
1: A little bit. I mean, it was she wouldn't kind of admit it. But also speaking of Juno in this episode, one of the funniest lines I think in the whole series was when they were opening the boxes that were under their seats. And Juno says, watch, mine's full of poo. (laughs) (laughs) That got me. It was so funny. Like, she's just the cutest little character.
0: (laughs) Uh, I love that actress. She was in, um, she was in the Midnight Club before this, so I'm okay. glad she's doing more Mike Flanagan stuff. Um, would you buy Goldbug products? Would Would you buy Tanny's Goop? I'm
1: like not even sure I know what the Goldbug products were. They're just like health products that were catered to the specific person.
0: Yeah, like do you know like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop brand? I have heard of it. I don't fully know what it is. <laughs> it's like lifestyle stuff but you know very shishi. and mm. I, i'm i don't even really know what goop is all i know is that like the vagina candle
1: why don't you ask me again when i make way more than six figures yeah no they're not just way more than i make now yeah. and then i'll let you know how i feel about goop and personalized beauty
0: products <laughs> <laughs> fair fair <laughs> we, we are not the ushers no Yeah, and also just want to point out this episode is there's so many, like, blurbs and lines they use from different Poe things that I just can't fit all the Easter eggs in here. But I love they made a reference in here to dream within a dream. All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. And um, I also love there's a quote from Eleonora. Men called me mad, loftiest intelligence. I just have to admire... Uh, I can't imagine how much time Mike Flanagan and the other writers spent like pouring over every corner of Poe to fit this much stuff in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's so many details and they're so intertwined. Like it's not just parallel this from this story, this from that. It's, it's really delicately done.
0: Yeah. And then we get to episode seven, which is definitely one of my tops, the pit and the pendulum. What did you think?
1: It was overall disturbing. Mm -hmm. In, in multiple ways, I mean, the way that Freddie treated Morella, bringing her home, and what, just the way he treated her at home. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, I enjoyed that, I mean, I guess there was some of this before now, but you really got into Augie, here, like the older Augie in the basement talking with Roderick, hearing the noises that, you know, like the kind of thumping in the basement, and that pulls straight from the short story that this whole series is based on. Right, right. So I liked that there was this tie, and I was thinking, like, maybe they're going to wrap it up In a way that really matches the short story, which I always appreciate when they when they can bring it in close to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I I wasn't sure at first, like how this was going to match up because, okay, so the short story, it's about a guy who is um, a victim of the Spanish Inquisition. And then it basically ends with him being laid in a pit. And then there's this pendulum, very much like what happens to Freddie at the end, uh, swinging back and forth only in the story, uh, the Spanish Inquisition ends, and he's saved at the last moment before the rats can eat him. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, this pit in the pendulum ending, actually, George R. R. Martin rewrote it in high school, and it's one of the things that kind of inspired him to become the kind of writer that he is. I talk about this more on the Electric Bookaloo episode with uh, Maester Anthony that I mentioned. But yeah, so we, we have uh, Freddy frederick usher aka Frederick, i always thought that was funny <laughs> i thought that was funny too uh, played by henry thomas and his name comes from like i said that uh first poe short story uh, metzinger a tale in imitation of the german and in this story frederick is the last of his family <clears throat> <laughs> and he's now a baron And he's got this rivalry with this other family, and there's like a prophecy that this family's going to be his ruin. And then he causes a fire that kills the head of their family, but he gets an awesome new mystery horse, no questions asked. But then his own house catches on fire, and his awesome new mystery horse rides him right into the fire, and he burns up. And there's this puff of horse-shaped smoke in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, I guess that does actually seem to jive well with our Freddy Mm -hmm. here. Uh, One thing that I noticed, though, I I was like, why is he torturing her? And then I realized, oh, he is the inquisition in this story. You know, he's the one who's like, tell me, tell me what the password is and why you went to the party and where your ring is. And look at all these pictures. So then when I saw that, I was like, oh, well, then he's going to die just before. She can die, and she, she'll she be saved from the Inquisition. Hmm. And that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing about him ripping out her teeth, it seems to come from this story called Berenice, which is an 1835 story about a man whose neglected fiancé begins to wither away, and in all ways except her teeth are still like big and perfect. She dies, but her husband's still obsessed. And so one morning he wakes up with soil and a shovel and a bag of teeth next to him. And it turns out that he had slept walk to dig up her grave, pulled out all her teeth, but don't worry, one of the servants saw her wandering around, she was still alive. What? <laughs> <laughs> more <laughs> more being buried aliveness. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Woof. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. I was wondering though, the whole cocaine thing, like, okay, so first of all, when I watched that episode, I happen to have just had like way too much coffee. <laughs> so it's like really feeling his like I, I struggles. It's <laughs> yeah. like, oh my God. But yeah, I was wondering if like, okay, why the cocaine thing, I guess it explains him going off the deep end to a certain uh, extent, but also I was thinking maybe it's like the pit of addiction, the pit in the pendulum. Hmm? Hmm? Oh, that could be.
1: There's also, <laughs> there's also the tie in from decades ago where cocaine was used by dentists
0: and he did True. pull out her teeth so i don't know maybe there's some connection there he could have at least given her a little cocaine and by <laughs> by used
1: by dentists i do mean medicinally for the patients not right, I, whether right. did, they did it on their own that's that's a separate story <laughs>
0: well, that, yeah but yeah it restricts blood vessels so And then we get the we get the whole I was like, okay, so are we is the wrecking ball going to be the pendulum? But like, nope, they did like a whole uh, thing where something sharp happens to fall in such a way. I'm like, nope, this works for me. Only issue is where are the rats? There should be rats eating him. (laughs) Oh, boy, they probably
1: got to him after like digging through the rubble.
0: Yeah, that was my the speech to um, Lenore and the speech to Freddie were my two favorite Verna speeches for opposite reasons i guess okay i guess yeah they felt just
1: yeah i definitely thought that just most like literally speaking freddie's death was the most gruesome and also Mm. it felt the most deserved because he kept giving maury that drug that paralyzed her right which is horrifying like Mm -hmm. what he was doing to her and then the fact that he you know didn't realize cuz he was in this trance or whatever was putting it in his own drugs and ended up taking yeah. his own poison and that he was just laying there while this happened and unable to do anything was like yes just deserts you motherfucker
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the drug was nightshade which um morella is yeah moral is a name for nightshade M O R E L morella is it's another one of those It's a story from 1835 about a guy who has this really smart wife who wastes away, but she has a child and she dies in childbirth. And then the father doesn't want to name the child because he's so upset about it. And the child becomes more and more like his wife and it's freaking him out. So then at 10 years old, he takes a child to get baptized. And the priest says, what is the child's name? And out of his mouth just comes Morella. And then the child says, I am here and then dies. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, always a fun time. (laughs) (laughs) But this Morella Usher was played by Crystal Ballant. And oh, yeah, I love her like random side hobby of is it cake?
1: Yeah, right. Like that show. And like, she's really, really good at it. Whoever made those cakes for this show was really good at it.
0: (laughs) I mean, frankly, I was disappointed we didn't see more.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that would be fun. But it's too light, too lighthearted and happy yeah. for this show. Is it,
0: is it an IV bag or is it cake? Or like, is it a bleeding heart or is, or is it is cake? cake? <laughs> so what would be Perry's? Is it cake? <laughs> big, big dildo. <laughs> oh, he bites down on it and he's like, oh, damn it.
1: Oh, wait. Oh, actually,
0: <laughs> Put some of those bird eggs in there.
1: Yeah, there you go. What a
0: delicacy. <laughs> what a treat. Yeah, so we also, we get the wrap-up, then, like, this is the end of the main family deaths, and so we get the the two funerals, which, how much does it suck if your family is that rich and you still have to share a funeral with your siblings?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I only thought of it because of timing, but that is so funny.
0: <laughs> and the priest, he mentions uh, the imp of the perverse, which is another Poe thing, which is basically... This little inclination inside of us that tells us to do the bad thing, you know, where you just think like, what happens if I just push that person in front of me or Mm. what happens if I just like threw the remote at that person's head? (laughs) Drive off the cliff. Right.
1: It's those invasive thoughts that none of us have because we're normal, <clears throat> <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> but did notice like the, it seemed to come back again and again with the characters in the show. So I love that term, the imp of the perverse. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then we also we got some more obviously Poe funeral poetry because that's what all the priests be spitting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got spirits of the dead again mixed with For Annie and yeah the spirits of the dead poem. It follows a dialogue between a dead speaker and a person visiting his grave. So the spirit tells the person that those one knows in life surround a person in death as well, which is definitely what's going on with Roderick. And then we get to the finale. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) What do you think? Did the finale bring it all together for you?
1: Yeah, I mean... I think it brought it together. I was looking for it to be connected to the story. So I'm glad that they brought it back to that. Because, I mean, I understand there was tons of Poe sprinkled in throughout and that each right. each episode has its own theme. But where's
0: the usher? Yeah. But
1: it, it was also kind of, for me especially, parallel to the story, the short story, because the short story is 15 pages I think and Mm -hmm. all but the last page are like descriptive text and then in one page all this all this action happens right um and it felt like that kind of it was displayed similarly in the show in a way that was it was fitting and I was also you know they brought back some little tidbits that I kind of forgot about like the tools he used and the sapphires and right um it felt like Everything happened as it should, I suppose, and and as kind of you were expecting, but not necessarily exactly how I expected it.
0: Except poor Lenore played by Kylie Curran. Yes, that was that was a bummer.
1: I felt I knew it was coming at that point, but yeah. Um, and I, I was actually worried it was gonna be gruesome, so I was really glad when it was a more sentimental moment. Mm-hmm.
0: It was it was a beautiful speech, um, the one that Verna gave her about just knowing that she goes out with her at least she knows that her life affects millions, affects the world in a good way, you know? Yeah. And to counteract what her family's done.
1: But also terrifying to think of it from Lenora's perspective. She doesn't know she's about to die. And so right. she's like, why is this woman telling me this? Like, and it's kind of hopeful. It's like, oh, that's yeah. amazing. All these good things are going to happen. My mom's going to get better, blah, blah, blah. And then just and then boop, boom. Done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But this is the kindest death that she could give
1: it was it was very kind I mean Verna is what like a devil or demon she was tearful she was literally tearful when she was talking to her she felt sorrow which I didn't know that a being of that type was capable of
0: yeah well I mean I I wasn't completely surprised just because of the way she was with each person she's like you know you or you could do the right thing oh no you're just gonna go off the deep end okay (laughs) All right, Frederick when you pulled her teeth that was it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah I guess that's true it's it's interesting to give slightly human characters to a evil character.
0: Yeah, but is she evil? Is she
1: evil? I don't know. Well, you think of her as like the, as like a devil making a, you make a pact with the devil, right? You sell your soul to the devil. Like that's kind of how I saw yeah. her because of the deal she made with young Roderick and, mm. and um, Madeline. So I yeah. guess not necessarily evil, maybe just fulfilling her duty. But her duty, like she works in hell, or if there is a hell, you know, I'm not religious. But
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, um, I was thinking of her as like a angel of vengeance at first, but then of course there's the death analogy and the and the mask of the red death. Um, I don't know. She's obviously older than humanity. We know that her name is an anagram for Raven, and we see her, especially at the end, they're showing her with these tops that have like the black feathered sleeves Mm -hmm. so subtle yeah
1: they did a lot of raven imagery
0: yeah do you think she was the best character slash performance or do you reserve that for someone else
1: no I would give it to her I think her she had a an awesome variety in the instances of her character I wanted to say characters but it's all her yeah um so she and she just yeah she had a depth that made me really feel with her like even though she did all these gruesome things I was on her side And I was just eager to see more of her. So I really did enjoy. I think she did an awesome job in that role, that actress.
0: All right. So we haven't talked about that uh, bar outside of time and space, speaking of Verna. Um, So this seems to come from Poe's poem, Dreamland, where the lines say, I have reached these lands, but newly from an ultimate dim thule, from a wild, weird climb that life sublime out of space out of time so ultima thule it's latin meaning extreme limits of travel and discovery now i do wonder if the poem is talking about death and i should point out that poe he does seem to have been suicidal at least once in his life after an engagement didn't work out so what do you think what did you make about this bar outside of time and space as verna put it
1: um I at first I did think the bar was real so but it makes sense as you got mm-hmm. to know the story more and realize that Verna's more of an ephemeral being that it would not be real mm-hmm. um so it was I don't know it was an interesting unassuming kind of place for people to go and and make a deal that will change their lives like that I found it pretty interesting that that's where they ended up and they thought it was a way to escape something bad that they had done, but it ended up leading them into maybe the worst thing they did. I mean, arguably the worst thing they did for the rest of their lives because they doomed the rest of their family.
0: Yeah, entire bloodline. She said bloodline. (laughs) (laughs) Which I have to, so my Nigerian friend, Dr. Precious Austin Ushi, also known as her royal bubbliness, you've heard me refer to her before in this podcast, she was talking about that there's a lot of Nigerian stories of trading blood lineage for wealth and rituals So they have a priest figure, um, they call the native doctor or the Babalawo, who you can say, okay, uh, they'll give you an early death or um, doom in a a generation or say you only have limited children. So she was saying as soon as those terms came up, I was like, uh, I knew what bloodline meant. (laughs) (laughs) Now, can I ask you, actually, would you rather a short wealthy life or a long struggling life?
1: After seeing this episode, I want to say long struggling. I mean, episode after seeing this <laughs> show. But no, if, if mm-hmm. someone had just asked me that, I'd probably say short wealthy life because I don't know, life's really hard. And if it's a lifetime of struggling and I got to choose between like a shorter amount of bliss, I think I might choose the bliss.
0: But then I guess it's like, what is wealth? You know, the whole thing that Dupin says at the end. Because when I think of a longer life, I guess what I would most want is. To like, I just think I I could learn so much more. I could see so much more. Maybe that's what wealth is to me. But I don't know. I don't know if that's allowed to me. If I'm supposed to be.
1: It seems like you may have some poetic justice of interpretation here of the wealth based on based on the story. If we're talking wealth in that way, if wealth if wealth mm-hmm. can be more than money, then sure, I would take. Oh, still a short wealthy life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Set.
0: Okay, so one thing I didn't necessarily understand is like Madeline, she was pressuring Roderick to kill himself. And it was like, the implication was that if he dies, it saves them all. But how, how would that work? I didn't take it to mean he
1: saved them all. I thought it was just that it would end the terror that they were going through and save her that it would like break the pact because maybe she felt if they didn't die together, then it would be mm. broken.
0: I mean, I think she was in denial because Verno was very clear in this in together, out together. She was,
1: but they were definitely in denial. Like they admitted to kind of forgetting she existed. Although I guess Roderick said he kind of knew the whole time that that's this is what he was getting himself into. But maybe they, not on purpose, kind of put it in the back of their mind and chose, or maybe on purpose, actually chose to forget mm-hmm. that that happened as like in a denial sense. But um, I think I don't know. I thought she was hopeful that doing that would kind of break the promise they had made so many years ago.
0: Mm, yeah, I, I guess that must be what she thought. But um, I'm like, I, I just wonder, I, I have to think that that's not true. Because then if that is true, or if like, if he could have saved Lenore by killing himself, he would be terrible not to have done that.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not true. It's it's because um, I mean, I mean, you see it like she brings him back from what should have been certain death, the whole bottle of mm-hmm. pills and an entire bottle of whiskey and
0: Vern is like nope
1: yeah she's like oh you're fine you're just gonna a little bit and you're fine like wake up <laughs> snap to boot it boot and reboot <laughs> Yeah, boot and <laughs> rally baby <laughs> um maybe it was just a selfish last kind of like a last straw like let's just try this one thing for me
0: <laughs> yeah selfish thing um yeah i mean she did seem to care about lenore lenore by the way played by kylie curran um and she called her grandfather grampus which is i thought was kind of funny but i looked it up and it's actually it's a it's a name that's used for like several different types of deadly animals like the orca and like a particular type of scorpion (laughs) yeah hi ghost (laughs) every single episode he has to be on it (laughs) um (laughs) But it's also, it's a type of whaling boat, the one that is used in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which you can, I swear I'm not hurting him.
1: <laughs> he's not even in the room. <laughs> no,
0: he's downstairs.
1: <laughs> um. Well, so I can say while, while he's meowing, um, <laughs> when, when she said, or when whoever said that Lenore used to call him I think it was the Grampus the Grampus or maybe just Grampus but um I thought it sounded like Krampus and I just thought yeah of the <laughs> horror it's the first thing I,
0: I was like it's it's like the horror grandfather <laughs> yeah. which I mean yeah he kind of is no it's fair yeah you're the grandpa who might kill me you know yeah. cut me out of your will potato potato
1: yeah
0: and yeah, I did think it was sad, though, that at the end, so he's getting these texts at the end, and it turns out it's just never more over and over, which is great in terms of tying it back with the poem. But what kind of dark shit was she texting that the chatbot came out with this? Or is Madeline just not nearly as good as at her job as we thought?
1: Yeah, I I don't know that I thought it actually came from stuff Lenore had said or written, which I mean, it would make okay. sense based on what Madeline was putting together with the algorithm but I took it as more of a glitch like a glitch in the matrix kind of thing where it was just I mean it was him hearing the raven saying nevermore over and over again like he's trying to get it to answer something different or he's hoping like in the short story he's trying to get mm-hmm. poem trying to get the raven to answer something different he keeps asking questions and it's just right. the same and in this show, like he's hoping maybe we don't he does in a minute, but like hoping that the text will say something different, that it, she'll actually somehow be alive. But it's just the same answer over and over again, because she is never more. Everyone's never more. And you're about to be never more.
0: <laughs> yeah. So they talked about it on the production as if like this sort of chatbot thing would entomb her somehow. But for me, I thought the beginning When Madeline was saying, uh, I want immortality to Verna and then, you know, sealed the deal with the kiss. I thought that, oh, so this AI chatbot, that's going to be her immortality because it's like a form of that in terms of both being able to store something of your personality, but also in terms of like having her be remembered. What do you think? Do you do you think it's better it didn't work or do you wish it had?
1: I think it's better that it didn't work because she doesn't deserve immortality. <laughs> Straight up, but but, what about but also, well, I'm just saying, Madeline doesn't deserve immortality. Mm-hmm. So for it to have worked, then she could have done it with her own consciousness. But mm-hmm. I think part of the reason we know it didn't work is that all the typos, like it wasn't just right. the word "never more" over and over. It was each spelled differently, and like you know, shifting all and, wrong. And, yeah. yeah. So I think it's like she almost had it. Like she had something there. But it didn't work. And so she will not live forever because, well, first of all, she shouldn't. (laughs) But second of all, whatever, everything she tried and all the confidence she had in herself in the end, it, it was broken just like her. So are you team you wouldn't live forever if you've been the chance? No, absolutely never. I have always felt this way. I would never wish that upon myself. Mm-hmm. I feel it feels to me more like a curse than anything else, especially if I'm the only one living forever. Mm-hmm. I would—that's—that's that's a curse I would wish upon no one to see everyone around you just consistently. What if it's you and Zelda and Jose gets like a hundred years? <laughs> okay, can we just tell the people that Zelda's my cat that I'm obsessed with? <laughs> yeah. And if it were me and Zelda, that might change things. But no, realistically, even me and one other person you forever that's a forever of making friends love relationships everything that just cycles and dies and also like the earth right now is scary the world is scary and it's happened before and it's happened before that and it will happen again it's just cycles of like mm. I've I just uh-uh. I'm, one lifetime's already hard enough man
0: <laughs> no fair I mean, I guess for me, it comes down to I always think back to when I was reading Faust in high school. And I was like, Oh, this guy sold himself to the devil for, you know, unlimited learning. I was like, finally, here's a pact of the devil, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's what kills me is just like, I just never have enough time to see and do and think about all the things that I want to. And if I just had more time. I definitely wish I had more time. Maybe a few hundred years. Oh, God.
1: Also, think of our aching bodies. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Obviously, that needs to be part of the deal. We need to. At this point,
1: our arms are falling off. Our tits are falling off.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah. We we need a little like elastogen and, uh, you know, some oil for the joints. (laughs) Right.
1: Or just become a robot, right, with your mind. And then yeah,
0: okay, back. sure. Because then, like, give me my body from when I was, like, 24.
1: Yeah, how do we get that back?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're in magic, not more science fiction. So, yeah, so speaking of deteriorating bodies, we've got Roderick seeing specters of death. So he says this might have to do with this, like, cadacil, which is... It's a a real thing. It's a rare inherited type of vascular disease. This is Wikipedia here. A disease of the blood vessels such as arteries and veins that can cause dementia. Catacill stands for cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarcts and leucenitis leukins 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 yep
1: leuco Luco encephalopathy and okay i knew this one leuco <laughs> Luke- encephalopathy i'm done and <laughs> Luke-
0: encephalopathy there you go there you go that's there we it. go that's uh you get a anyone who can say that gets 10 points but yeah cad- cad- points
1: for gryffindor <laughs> yeah.
0: 10 points for a uh, pronounce Oh, Ravenclaw. Oh. Uh, Womp. <laughs> Verna <laughs> Larker. <laughs> I was just trying to make a new anagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but okay, Catasyl, that's easier. So mom had it. Did they all have it? Because they were all seeing things. So like what if the Verna thing wasn't actually real, but they all had like a mass hallucination?
1: Hmm. I'm trying to think of how I can disprove that. (laughs) I mean, some of them had legit reasons, like we talked about, with either drugs or lack of sleep. You could argue that Victorine had it from stress. People can go crazy from stress, and she was being literally
0: pressured to save her father. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Did she
1: know that, though? She did at one point, right?
0: Didn't Um, he admit it was for him? I think at the the last moment, with the human Um, trials, maybe, when he was pressuring for that.
1: So it's interesting. And also, they're all, I would argue, they're all too young for that to start. Did Did Wikipedia say when it starts to hit? Because, you know, he was in his 70s, but they were.
0: Yeah, 40s. you would think it would be an older thing. Um, Although his mom was younger than that, at least. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. And obviously, it doesn't all hit within the same week. Right. Yeah, the timing is pretty sus. But I do like when they toe the line, like where it could be. It could be supernatural or it could be just all coincidence, you know? Yeah. Do you think... Okay, so it seemed like they were all figments of his guilty conscience in a way, you know, that they were his telltale heart, the what was haunting him. Um, It felt like he felt like he was responsible for their deaths. And obviously, by the end, we find out about the pact. So I guess it's true. But then it also felt like... Even without the pact, do you think he's responsible for the deaths of his kids? Like if you look at Perry's death, Camille's death. You could
1: potentially argue that he is because he raised them in such a way that they were so disconnected from like, reality. They were so absorbed in their wealth and never had to really fend for themselves, never had to build their own lives. They just kind of like... Suckled on the teat of his <laughs> his money and his power. Yeah, um, and that could have. And also, I think he just wasn't. He didn't seem like a super present father. No. I mean, he had six kids with five wives. Wives. I'm like, what are you, Bob Marley? Like, <laughs> I mean, that's like settle down.
0: Well, I mean, I guess a lot of them were just flames. right, not wives, just uh, yeah. here and there. Yeah.
1: So, but that in itself, like, maybe he led to their their deaths in a way, just by not giving them really any sort of start of a good life and they were kind of always going downhill right from the start yeah I was so indirectly I mean yeah
0: but I was thinking like with a lot of them like with Perry you know because he was storing the chemicals on the roof um like with Camille I don't know I guess because she was working for him in some way obviously with Vic with the whole pressure with the monkeys and And the fact that he was, uh, he blamed himself for pitting them against each other growing up.
1: Right. So that's part of it. Yeah.
0: That's how uh, Camille died, I guess. Mm -hmm.
1: But then what about like Tamerlane? Tammy, she didn't have a direct. No. She was actually trying to break away from him, like make her own name.
0: Yeah. I think Tammy, she really, she's the William Wilton. She really stabbed herself in the mirror, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's like let me hire someone to replace me and then get jealous about the fact that I have hired someone to replace me.
1: <laughs> right. But even the one who was meant to, who is they said would replace him, you know, Frederick, Mm-hmm. his death was more about jealousy and yeah. like going insane because of, I mean, I think maybe a mix of grieving and jealousy because his, he was upset about what happened to Morella.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think he could have run the company, though. He seemed the softest out of the six of them. I agree. He was kind of like the douchiest.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was just a little like, me. Like, you're not really a powerhouse like the rest of your siblings. Yeah. Well, Perry's not a powerhouse. He's just a power player. But yeah. the rest of them were pretty, like, strong-headed. And he was just kind of,
0: I felt a-, a bit bad for Perry, the fact that, like his father couldn't see that, you know, he's from a younger generation, and he did see a real viable business plan in this. It's just as legit as Leo saying, I'm going to make a video game company.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think probably at that point, if I had to speculate on this, I would think that Roderick's heard enough business ideas from his other five children. And at this point, when someone's like, let's make a sex club, he's like, OK, I'm done yeah. with this. <laughs> but even though it may have been a good idea, it may have made a lot of money, especially from his generation, Roderick's generation, like the least prominent sounding business idea that he's, he's probably heard a billion.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of things Roderick hears, he hears the bells, the bells. You know that poem?
1: It does sound familiar. Could you remind me?
0: It's like the... It starts out like really soft with like the ringing of the tinkling of the, you know, and then by the end it's like the clamorous groaning of the bells. Yeah. um, But it was this, yeah, it was a cool little Easter egg in there. Um, And another one was the cognac. So... This is a real cognac, the one that Roderick keeps trying to get Dupin to drink. The Henri IV Doudignon heritage cognac from Grand Champagne, believed to be the world's most expensive in real life. Roderick says $4 million at auction. And indeed, it's from 1776, aged 100 years in barrels, like encrusted in diamonds and gold. But does it taste like shit is my question. Seventeen seventy six. Like I know cognac doesn't age when it's bottled, but that's going to be fragile. And I, I mean, I'll try it. I would taste it. Would you taste it? I would taste it with reservation. <laughs> I could not believe that Dupin didn't want to at least have a sip. But I also wondered if that somehow saved him morally. Wait, he didn't have any sips. He, I don't. Did he? Because he was holding. He kept saying no, and he was holding it, and then he put it back. Hmm. I guess I just assumed
1: he was sipping it because he was holding it, but maybe I didn't actually see him bring it to his mouth. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I would try it. I don't I'm more of a bourbon girl if I'm going to drink whiskey, okay. so it's probably not sweet enough for me. <laughs> especially so, 100
0: years old or more. Okay, so if you have to choose between the two different liquor wines, brandy and amontillado, which would you try, the sherry or the brandy?
1: I'd probably want to try the brandy because it sounds like a little more bang for your buck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's a like, lot of buck. <laughs> but if I And if I
1: hate it, I want to take a very small sip of something that I'm like a little, I don't know. Like sherry is just a sweet dessert wine, right? So I'd rather well, try Well, not
0: always. It can be dry, yeah. I just meant dessert wine is the point. Yeah. Amontillado is, um. it has, it grows with like, it's called a floor, like this floor yeasty stuff on top and that sort has like this nutty flavor. Hmm. I'd probably, yeah, I would go for that. But yeah, so the cognac, I think that it's probably a reference to, have you ever heard of the cognac toaster? No. It was someone who for, well, it's actually probably two someones who for 60 years, every January 19th on Poe's birthday would go to his grave in Westminster Hall and burying ground in Baltimore and would leave a bottle of cognac usually or some other liquor Uh, would toast the grave, leave the rest of the bottle and three red roses in a distinctive arrangement. So yeah, they kept this up from probably from the 1930s until 2009. And then they just stopped showing up. So at some point, there was something about like it being handed over to the next generation. So probably the original person died. And then the second person just didn't take it as seriously and eventually stopped. So in 2016, the Maryland Historical Society they selected a new toaster to revive the tradition. So Ashley, what would you want your toaster to leave on your grave every year?
1: Like the dad in me is hearing toaster like the appliance and I want to say a piece of bread, but um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what would I want to leave on my grave? Um, is this so sappy that I'd want them like to leave a picture of them and me, like Aww. each person? Cause I have a, mm-hmm. I have a big social life and a lot of friends and if everyone came and had like a memory of me and they left just like a picture of us on the grave.
0: Oh, that's nice. What about you? Um I don't know, maybe like instead of leaving something on my grave, like plant something nearby like a really pretty flowers or a cool tree, weeping yeah. cherry.
1: Wait, can we backtrack a second though about leaving what cognac around? Mm-hmm. It made me think of mom and dad's story of when they and the neighbors would like cycle through that bottle of tequila with the worm oh, in right. it. And they would leave it in each other's places and hide it from each other. And like whoever found it had to hide it in the next neighbor's house.
0: <laughs> yeah, because it had the worm in the bottom. I I remember that. I was uh, I was old enough to like be tagging along to those parties and to... <laughs> I thought it was really funny to like try to hide it in someone's liquor cabinet. while well, they distracted them.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love those games. My, we still do it with a stuffed animal. When, when my friend Marielle comes over, I know that Baba is going to be hidden somewhere crazy <laughs> somewhere in the house. <laughs> One time she put it in the lamp though. That was a bad idea. Cause you know, Oh no,
0: it got burned.
1: <laughs> it didn't, but I could have turned the lamp on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's but true. Otherwise
1: she picks really good good places. <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, my cats do that all the time, but they just don't, um, they don't tell me. It's just a really funny game where they just <laughs> hide things.
1: <laughs> yeah, but do they hide dead animals like Leo's fake cat?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, luckily they don't go outside or they would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so speaking of death, so we got Verna, what did you, one of my favorite things, and they put a, a clip of it online, is watching Carlo Gugino Tell that poem, The City and the Sea, during that last scene about when, you know, when she says, I'm older than humanity and talking about, it almost sounds like Atlantis being swallowed by its own hubris in a way. And she says that that poem is meant to offer the clarity that he's asking for. Do you think it does? I
1: don't know if I would have caught that since I didn't catch that it was specifically, I mean, I knew it was a poem, but I didn't recognize the poem. But that would make sense that in the end, she's saying, you know, this is what brought you here and here's you did this to yourself.
0: (laughs) I thought it was interesting, though. Yeah. So when one of the last people that she meets is uh, Arthur Pym, Mark Hamill again. And yeah, so he his character comes from this uh, this book that I said, the only complete novel that Poe made. And you've basically heard like the whole summary of the novel, you know, when they talk about Arthur Pym's story in this. Um, where he was a stowaway, and they do this trip around the world. The Transglobe expedition was real, by the way, in the 80s, uh, but this is obviously well before that. And it is funny, by the way. So apparently Mark Hamill improvised a throwaway line where he says, I'm having Richard Parker for dinner. And in the novel, Richard Parker is the name of a cabin boy who draws a short straw and gets eaten and it also reminded me of life of pi which i always interpreted as having a like cannibalistic twist at the end but apparently not everyone interprets it that way right but yeah I, that line was improvised by hamels but here's an even crazier thing so okay so there's this novel that was published in 1838 that has this young guy richard parker getting getting eaten and then in 1884 so 46 years after that novel was published there were four men who were, yeah, they were set adrift after their boat sank, and they were shipwrecked without food, and they ended up needing to cannibalize to survive, too, and they ended up killing and eating a 17-year-old cabin boy named Richard Parker. Poignant. And, yeah, nobody noticed this for, like, a century until descendants of this wrote a letter and, and said, hey, wait a minute, this is a really weird coincidence.
1: <laughs> Yikes. Wouldn't want to draw that short straw.
0: Yeah. So then we get to the grand finale of it, which is really, like, as you said before, is really the biggest thing to come from the fall of the House of Usher is the actual fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, I, I did miss having like that grand building, but I do think they at least made it look the way that it should. And it is interesting that yeah, during this conversation, Roderick, he keeps telling Dupin that Madeline's in the basement and like mother, like daughter, it's a live burial. Madeline did not get her wish for immortality. It's funny that so she ends up getting mummified, which in a way, there is a post-short story called Some Words with a Mummy, which is about these archaeologists. They end up finding a mummy and they ended up unwrapping the mummy and he's just fine and he chills and they have like a whole conversation about their lives. And then one of the guys goes home, goes to bed, wakes up in the morning and was like, you know what? The world sucks. I just want to be mummified for a few hundred years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but and a lot of the stuff about Madeline collecting these like, Egyptian death relics seem to be a reference to that, especially since one of the death relics are stones that were put in the eyes of the mummy. Right. So mummies are like, you know, it's a way to be immortal.
1: That's a good point that she did kind of get a sense of immortality with the slight mummification, but it also like didn't work, right? Because mm-hmm. she was still alive. And also I was, I don't know, I guess not surprised, but in the end when Verna was placing the objects on the gravestones, hers were the sapphires. So they didn't stay in her body. You know, they were removed. Yeah. So she didn't get her full glorious mummification that was intended. She lost her eyes for what? <laughs> She did, which is a little ironic because she asked for Verna's eyes in, like, episode four or five or something, saying, like, bring me her eyes as the receipt of her death.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing the same thing. Like, there's definitely something with Poe and eyes, but, yeah, I'm not sure what the through line is uh, with that in here. Yeah, the cat's
1: eyes Mm -hmm. and
0: yeah, that went straight out of the Black Hat book. But yeah, there's got to be other Poe stories with I stuff in it that I'm just don't know. I can't know all of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. I try. So who do you think's worse, Roderick or Madeline? It's
1: a good question. When they were younger, when they were in the bar and making the deal with Ferna I was actually kind of surprised by Madeline seemed more hesitant mm-hmm. to make the deal. And especially with her admission of like admitting, I, I don't have kids. This isn't like my decision. Right. And she seemed tearful, more tearful and more worried about making it. But then other than that, I'd say she was the driver. Yeah. But it's almost like she had to be because especially growing up when she did, like if you didn't, stand for yourself you would be just a secretary blowing your boss like, <laughs> um so it sucks it's kind of like she might have been worse in my eyes but because she had to be yeah because otherwise like it's like a woman even nowadays sometimes like a woman who's assertive can be seen as a bitch mm-hmm. whereas a man who speaks the same way is just seen as a normal as leader. A leader yeah so it's like we have to kind of demand that Power, but in doing that, we become less or like evil or not evil, but like bad in a way.
0: Yeah, not our best, so, not what we would ideally want to be. Yeah,
1: maybe, maybe. I mean, I guess you could argue that he's worse because he literally chose to, he had children alive and said, yes, like that's fine. They can die when they're 50. <laughs> <Like, laughs> he literally chose to kill his family so that they could be rich for a bit of time. So, hey, I, short, well torn, but I. I guess I would say him because she kind of had to be who she was, I would say.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess also with the business analogy, she gave up having kids and he was just like, nah, just going to go ahead and do that. Um, True. Why do you think he did that? Like, do you think he was just in denial or he was like, you know, better short wealthy life or who cares? I think it's a combination
1: of a power play and just complete laziness and lack of care one is like yeah legacy like let's spread my seed let's get my name out there like let's keep my evolutionarily speaking let's keep my bloodline alive mm-hmm. well so he thought kind of um but also just like it doesn't matter what i do there are no repercussions i can do anything and have sex with anyone mm-hmm.
0: and then he tries to act all magnanimous he's like well because my dad was a dick i'm going to make sure all my kids are treated equally except Perry
1: yeah yeah, but equally, like they were all they were all trying to get him to approve them. Like, I think each of them, their ventures were like, so dad will in part of it was like, so I don't know. So he chooses me and not in a good way, but like they were all kind of seeking his approval in a way. So I don't think any of them felt like he was necessarily a good father.
0: Yeah. So uh, what did you think of the final scene when Dupin runs out and we see the house crumble?
1: um that's what I hoped for you mm-hmm. know I, I've mentioned a couple of times that I I really I like when the show or movie matches the book as closely as it can and I know how hard that can be especially with longer mm-hmm. stories this is not a long story <laughs> <laughs> but I found it's I mean it's fitting not only in the name of the show but like the ha- the family itself had to fall and honestly for like populations to survive and to see it physically happen, yeah, I mean, it it resonated with me.
0: Yeah, no, I thought it, my only disappointment, as I said, is that like it wasn't that grand scale house, but whatever. I guess we've seen that before. Yeah, but I thought it was well handled, and we have we have more survivors than I expected. So it's not just the narrator, aka Dupin, surviving, and he's got a he's got a nice ending you know he loses his job but he also stops being a shit dad and he realizes that his wealth is his family so he's kind of got maybe the happiest ending in a way i would say oh yeah i would agree with you him or, or morella well she might be scarred for life and lost her daughter
1: right and the the daughter loss is huge you know no parent will ever ever mm-hmm. get over the loss of a child but also i know I mean, I don't know. I have heard and read about burn victims and the pain they go through and how long it can take. Right. And she I know she's never going to look the same. Like she probably will always have this kind of appearance that everyone will know. She's literally been like burned alive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think the rest of her life is probably difficult and she's making the best of it with what she can do with her, you know, raising money and doing what she did, uh, <laughs> fundraising and everything. But I think that's a tough life.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's got the foundation in her daughter's name. That's great. But I, I noticed, by the way, both her and uh, Juno, their recovery. Like, so Juno was getting off the, the Lego Dome and had to be weaned off over. And it turns out it's three years for both of them. So I was wondering, I know Poe was about three years old when he was orphaned. I don't know if this three years is just a coincidence. It's a nice number. <laughs>
1: That's a good point. When I heard the three year thing with Mori, I knew it sounded familiar, but it didn't quite make it click that that was Juno's recovery time as well. So it would make sense that I don't know. Well, it's not recovery for mm-hmm. Poe if that's when his mom died, but
0: that it's a significant amount of time for him. Um, so by the way, yeah, Juno played by Ruth Codd. She was kind of like a low key, really great character. Uh, she deserves better than this family. And I'm glad she's going to get it. Um, her name comes from Eureka, which was a 150-page essay, or as Poe called it, a prose poem on the material and spiritual universe. So basically, in this in this essay, Poe predicted the Big Bang theory like eight years before they came up with it. Before it happened. <laughs> before it happened. It's <laughs> like there's going to be a universe. It's going to blow your mind. <laughs> Literally. <Yeah. laughs> Do you ever think about like what if there was like a little particle universe like inside you and you just went and blew up? <laughs>
1: <laughs> or if just one of your farts starts a universe? Yeah, you don't know. You, you never know.
0: <laughs> you don't. But no, I I mean I think he's got a few things where you know he, this was a clever cookie. You know he uh, he just he looked in the sky and and there was a Olbers' paradox, which was the question of why, given the vast number of stars in the universe, is the night sky dark? And he looked up there and he inferred like, oh, because it's expanding. So it might must have started as a singular particle. And I just, yeah, I find that so very impressive. The other cool thing. Well, I don't know. Cool is a weird word for this. But the other uncanny thing that he predicted in a way was he had this story called The Businessman in 1940. And there's an unnamed narrator again who suffers a traumatic head injury and ends up leading to a life of like sociopathic crime and outburst. And, you know, some neurologists have looked at that and were like, this looks a lot like the, you and I both studied psychology. So we studied uh, about Phineas Gage and yes. that was an accident in 1848, eight years after he wrote this, where an iron spike went through the skull of a railroad worker and his personality changed drastically. And it seems to be quite a lot like the short story of his. So Poe was just remarkably insightful. That's
1: impressive, knowing that knowing when he was alive. There's not a, so much science to go on. They had different, <laughs> limited <laughs> science. And uh, for him to have these ideas is pretty
0: cool. Yeah, his inference was in- uncanny. Yeah. Um, so survivors, back to survivors. We obviously have Pym. Uh, he's the only other no. To Verna, goes to jail. Do you think he made the right choice, or do you think like he could have taken, you know, his last years in luxury? I think he made the choice that
1: was the most fitting for his character because mm-hmm. he's not one to be swayed by anyone, even a devil or demon. Fair.
0: Yeah, he showed himself the strongest character in, in the end, in a way.
1: And throughout, I mean, he was—he's a firm character, unwavering.
0: Firm is a good word. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, Bill and Leo's guys are uh, just okay. Leo's, Julius gets to live happily ever after with the cat. Bill gets to live happily ever after with a woman who wants to have dinner with him herself, presumably. (laughs) Lucky guy. (laughs) And do you think Camille's assistants are dancing on her grave?
1: (sighs) If they're smart, they just turned their back and didn't look they turned away and didn't look back because that's like a a tainted pool that you don't want to dip your toe back
0: in. (laughs) Then later, how did you meet each other? Well, we were having threesomes and we decided we just want to cut out the middle.
1: (laughs) And that's when you say at work. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's got,
0: not everyone, a lot of people have those dirty work stories. We don't have to delve into them. So one of the assistants, by the way, she keeps saying Toby, Dammit" it to him. And that's because that's actually a reference to a character name in a story. Uh, Never bet the devil your head where Toby, Dammit it. He has too much bravado and he does not heed the title of the story and he loses his head. Spoiler alert.
1: Hmm.
0: So, OK, well, here's a question. Do you have the urge to rewatch this? Do you think like you'll rewatch this next year or anything like that?
1: I think that I would not because it wasn't shocking. There weren't really twists for me necessarily, or at least ones that were big enough for me to be like, oh, I want to see how this looks now that I know that. Okay. Like I kind of always thought Verna had to be some sort of non-human being. I kind of figured how it would end because of the short story. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I, like usually if I'm rewatching, for me, it's something that was... I feel like there are a lot of details that I would um, appreciate more on the second watch. But for me to be able to appreciate those details with this show, I think I'd have to read
0: the Poe's stories and poems. And that's the other question. Do you, after this, have the urge to read more Poe?
1: Yes. Okay. That is a yes. Yes. Um, And that's the thing, like, we, Jose was getting rid of some books and was thinking, like, oh, I don't read this, and was going to get rid of, like, a full anthology of (laughs) Poe's short stories and poems. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are we doing (laughs) with that? That's not. And then that was before we even talked about doing this podcast episode. So I was really grateful to have it, especially when you reach out to me. Mm -hmm. And now that I do have it, I'd like to start with just reading the stories that at least were the episode titles, um, just to think back on what the episode was and where there were connections and what we've talked about today. Yeah. But in general, I've always been intrigued by Poe and I've always liked him. I've just never like had it readily available or so I thought I didn't realize it was in the other room in this <laughs> house I live in. Um, So yes, I do think I would read more Poe. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Um. Yeah, I definitely, I'm glad that it got me reading more Poe again. Like now, as soon as I knew this was coming, I started reading it again and I did the whole, know uh recording for the book club so i've read now the fall of the house of the usher better than i've ever read it before <laughs> <laughs> deeper anyway um and yeah so i'm grateful for that and i think that also made my uh watch experience more enjoyable because i was just like playing spot the details uh which made me appreciate how finely woven this all was how well crafted it is yeah all right. Well, that's a good spot for us to pause for a break. We'll be back in a moment with a lightning round of our final thoughts, plus news of what's ahead for this feed and beyond. The old old has you seem to feel a wet with a sinister gleam and you wake with a scream from a horrible dream of a house. All right. And we're back. Just to wrap up our discussion of the fall of the House of Usher, I've got a lightning round of questions for you, Ashley. Don't think just answer favorite episode the telltale heart all right i think i'm gonna go with seven actually with uh the pit and the pendulum um favorite memorable lines or jokes um oh you said not to think about it how about watch (laughs) mine's full of poo (laughs) yeah that's a good one uh in the same scene where she gets beaned in the head (laughs) (laughs) i mean she doesn't deserve it but it was still funny (laughs) (laughs) uh best death freddy's yeah with the pendulum yeah
1: yeah being paralyzed and having that shit happen yeah
0: well that felt like i wanted it the most but perry's was also a pretty cool death
1: he was my second Mm. it was gruesome i mean it was a great second episode like just uh, really oof yikes acid rain whoo
0: yeah, it took me a couple of days to be able to watch, and I kept seeing on Twitter people were like, "End of the second episode! Whoa!" <laughs> also, the next episode, they
1: did, they were looking at a zoomed in picture of of Perry on this like massive right. TV on the wall. I'm like, "Why are you that zoomed in on your dead, burned brother? Yikes!
0: Yikes! Yikes!"
1: Yeah, they just really didn't care. No, they were they were very um, with emotionless about yeah.
0: it. All right. So speaking of the six emotionless kids, which of them had the least deserved death of those six?
1: Hmm. I maybe want to say Victorine
0: because she was honestly trying to help people. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I have to reluctantly go with you, even though I don't know, she's not necessarily the one I would have. Who is your best and worst usher?
1: I mean, I think Madeline was the best usher. Like, yeah, Yeah. she was a bad guy, but she was crafty. Like, She was really good at what she did. She was Mm -hmm. a powerhouse. Like, I was proud of her and a lot of what she said and stood up for herself. Worst usher? I don't know. Leo kind of sucked.
0: Oh, I loved Leo. (laughs) I was considering him for the best.
1: (laughs) He just didn't seem like a good person to anyone to me. I mean, all he did that was good in my eyes was give his brother Coke when he asked.
0: (laughs) Well... Or allowed him to take it while he was, like, busy freaking out about not having stuff in the tub. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm going to go with, for worst, I'm going to go with Frederick. Frederick. Mm. Yeah. He was just so wimpy. Yeah, but then, like, I hate that type where, you know, oh, I'm being so nice and fake, and then for the moment something goes against me, I'm evil and literally torturing you. I think that he let the drugs, like,
1: he was... Kind of grieving, took too many drugs and got crazy from that.
0: Yeah, I guess so. But that's, that's, hey, you went for Leo, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, all right, all right. He, he, all he ever did was take too many drugs and cheat. Mm, he was and shitty.
1: He cheated and, yeah, uh, he didn't he actually kill the
0: cat. He didn't actually. He
1: thought he did and <laughs> he, he thought, he, thought he, he found it logical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> fair.
1: He's like, oh, that happened. Shit. <laughs> yeah,
0: fair, fair, fair. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, most disposable usher most useless usher
1: mm. um, oh yikes i mean tammy <laughs> yeah
0: definitely she,
1: she was just kind of a side piece like of the family who yeah was, I,
0: don't know. I mean yeah you're, you're scoffing at perry's club party thing but tammy just literally sells you know bullshit on the internet
1: yeah no she's and it's she's also the only one who was not trying to like help She wasn't trying to do anything for the family. I don't know. I guess you could argue that from a couple of them, but
0: (laughs) no, Tammy. All right. Okay. Well, that was our lightning round. We have no feedback section this week, but we will have some final thoughts in a minute. Just first, a big thank you to you, Ashley. A big thank you to everyone who's listening at home. A big thank you to the book club. On the book club, as I mentioned before, you will now find the Poe Halloween special with special readings of The Fall of the House of Usher and the Raven. And you'll also be finding there soon uh, the Beacon 23 Q Howie book breakdown, and then we will be continuing with the silo read. And I would like to thank our new silos in the book club: Stacy C, Laura C, Ron A, Debbie P, Kwang Yu. Tom N, Babs, Peter O.H., Melissa T, and Simon M. Look forward to forging ahead with all these books and look forward to more of you joining us. Um, Now in this public feed, our next coverage is going to be Beacon 23, the Hugh Howey adaptation on MGM+. Luke and I are going to be covering that together as usual. And we will be continuing with our Dune series as well. And on the Lorehounds feed, we're currently right in the middle of Loki season two. And we are also expecting soon there should be the one shot of the creator and maybe a little Werewolf by Night Halloween specials coming our way soon, too. And as far as podcasts, I'm not on. I'm also really excited for them. They're starting back up the book nook with Silmarillion Stories and Earthsea, where they're now in the book to Hanu. And also in the network, Anthony and Steve have their podcast, Properly Howard, where they review films, often horror-based or with a theme, like it was remakes this past season. Whatever it is, it doesn't even matter if you've seen the film. They're funny guys. They make lots of jokes. And you can also soon hear them making jokes, teaming up with David and John from the Lorehounds for a Severance Crosspod team-up I've shared I've shared the preview episode in this feed, so you can give it a listen, and we'll hopefully see you on the Lorehounds Discord, back in this feed, and everywhere else. Now, Ashley, do you have any final thoughts about the show or Poe?
1: I would say the show was delightfully dreary, Mm -hmm. with characters that you hate to love and love to hate, Mm -hmm. and just enough gore to unsettle people who may not love blood and guts like I do
0: (laughs) yeah I mean it could have been scarier but I also recognize that uh, I come from a different place for that but overall they nailed the atmosphere they nailed the adaptation the characters I find fascinating definitely was still thinking about a lot of them after the show was over and I'm I'm definitely on the rewatch team so I'm into that what else are you going to be watching for Halloween week anything else scary Don't judge me, you know me, but
1: Jose won tickets on the radio near us to see Saw X.
0: Oh, okay. I mean, that's right up your alley. Which has
1: amazing ratings, by the way. If you hate the Saw franchise, this one's in like the 80 or 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. So fall back, check it out.
0: (laughs) No, even even Mark Kermode, uh, who's like a big UK reviewer, uh, he's often like scoffing and a lot of stuff. He was like, hey, he said the same thing. He's like, I'm not into Saw movies. This one's pretty good. All right, I'm Mm -hmm. in. Are you going to do any Halloween parties, any dressing up?
1: Yes, so I'm going to one this weekend, and we're doing a theme, though I'm not sure how many people are actually hopping on the theme, but it's Toy Story, and I'm going to be Rex, (laughs) the T-Rex.
0: Oh, wait, what are you going (laughs) to do with your arms? (laughs) I'm going to
1: wear them real small the whole night, and you know, (laughs) close to mouth, beard to mouth, that's how you go. Okay,
0: I was going to say, is Jose feeding you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll be able to, he can hand me the food and then I can feed myself.
0: Yeah. Okay. There you go. (laughs) I'm going to dress up as a podcaster and edit. No, I think I'm going to (laughs) do, I'm going to celebrate. I mean, a lot of my friends, it's just not the same anymore that they all have kids and stuff. So I'm going to do some horror marathoning to celebrate. That
1: sounds like a wonderful way to celebrate Halloween.
0: Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for coming and, you know, we can relive our horror watching growing up times together.
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me. I really liked being on your show.
0: Good. And I think the listeners are all going to really like it too. Um, And yeah, thank you so much to the listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anyone else you think would enjoy it. And five star ratings on your podcast listening app of choice is a huge help in getting more people to give this show a try. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the Netflix show, this show, Poe, anything else we cover on Wool we'll Shift Dust. You can find me on Blue Sky, Twitter, and most other social media at Alicia CB, and uh, you'll find me back on this feed at the start of November. Until then, down, down that town shall settle; hence, hell rising from a thousand thrones shall do it reverence. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. of their king. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar.